Your foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. In the Bible, there is this ancient worship of the God called Baal. But that's all ancient history. That's all done. Or is it? Something surfaced not too long ago in Europe. It was the worship of Baal, but under a different name. It's all connected to the G20. It's all connected to the opening of the Goddard Tunnel in Europe. How can this be? How can this ancient worship of the devil still be around, and why are we not recognizing it? Pastor Carl Gallops, we are very happy to have you again here today. Thank you, Scott. It's Thank a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure and for you. God bless you. Thanks Wonderful. for having me. Can you help us clear all of this up? What is going on with Baal in Europe? Yeah, thanks. Well, yeah, it's, it's an, amazing, an amazing phenomenon that has uh, happened again right before the eyes of the world. I mean, everything's now hiding in plain sight. Mm. You know, yeah. we're living in the days, we're the first generation to live in the days of, of uber technology, uh, a lot of it written about in the Bible. We were talking about that earlier, thousands of years ago, hinting towards those things that the whole world seeing at once and things like that. So we're living in those days now. And so, so much, we're pummeled with so much information that I, I think a lot of people just kind of, you know, they just miss it. They say, oh, that's, that's weird. And then they go on to the next thing. You say, wait, 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 take a look at this. So you're right. Uh, Baal, as, as you would say it in Hebrew, as most people say it in, in America, Baal. Uh, but but uh, basically, Baal has made a victory tour. In, mm. And in what I believe is the preparation for the setting up of the time of the Antichrist. And I don't, again, I don't set dates. I don't know when that's going to be. I'm not a, I try not to over-sensationalize what is there. So much of what's there is sensational, as you'll soon find out as we talk about this. But, but I just call it like it is. I know what the scriptures say. There's going to be a generation to see. It's going to get more and more of an of a, of a Antichrist spirit, more and more demonic coming to an apex of the Antichrist himself. So in the meantime, we know that's all fueled by Satan because he knows his time short, Revelation 12. He's furious, and he knows it's coming down to that point, and he so desperately wants to take the throne of God. So let me start here. Let me go back to the Old Testament very quickly and say what most of your audience already knows, but just for your newer viewers especially and newer people in the Word. B-A-A-L, guttural stop in the Hebrew, Baal. Uh, we call it Baal in America. <laughs> uh, but... But this worship of Baal or Baal is, is ancient, ancient, one of the most ancient gods that we run into in the Old Testament that continually plagued the nation of Israel in that the people were so prone to it, so drawn to it, so seduced by the Spirit. Now that word Baal, as you and your audience knows, Hebrew word, which literally, literally and only means um, boss, or Lord, little L. It, it was also kind of a Nick, Nickish name in the Hebrew for a husband, because under that culture, you know, kind of the, the master of the family, the Lord, little L of the family, the boss of the family. So Baal, it, and, and that's what it meant, a husband, a, a boss, a, a, a Lord, little L, master. Okay, but it became, it became, it, it, it just like words in the English language change, yes. you know. The word gay used to mean happy. Now it's something totally different. And, and so Baal was like that. It went through this transformation over time to mean more than just at the human level of a master or lord or boss or even the idea of a husband. 
but it went into the spiritual realm. And it became a name that I'm convinced was fueled by Satan himself to describe the worship of the, of the Baals, the Baals, the, the gods, little g with an S, you know, which comes from the Hebrew word Elohim. And so speaking of the fallen ones, particularly from the divine realm. So what happens, that kind of transforms then over the years into this elaborate system of worship. It's what we would call pagan, what we would call demonic, that, if, that, that truly those that are worshiping the, the Baals or, or Baal or Baal himself, it's Satan. I mean, anything that draws people away from, from Yahweh, okay? And the whole context of the worship of the Baals was, was truly was freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from Yahweh. Freedom from the Ten Commandments. Freedom from the personal relationship. Freedom from righteousness. You know, just, just let your flesh go. Let your mind go. Just. And so the whole Baal worship in the ancient days was centered around... And this has been thoroughly historically researched, and I've got it documented in a lot of my writings. But it's, it's centered around drug and alcohol abuse to alter your state of mind and spirit. It's centered around sexual filth and promiscuity and, and licentiousness. It was also involved, also involved with that was the offering of children to sacrificial flames for the purpose of gaining economic advantage. In other words, Baal promised that if you would bring so many children to each of these gatherings to, to be sacrificed, that those that brought them would reap all kind of financial rewards in their life and in their businesses and over their homes. I mean, it, it, this, this is all, again, historically verified. So that's where this whole mess begins in the Old Testament. You move into the New Testament and you discover the term Baal a few times, but it's most often called Baal-zebub mm-hmm. or Bel-zebub, we say. Mm-hmm. In and, and that translates to Lord of the Flies, literally, but but dynamic equivalent, it means basically Lord of death, Lord of filth. In yeah. fact, we have ancient historical writings where the, where the ancient rabbis of Jesus' time, they would often refer to Beelzebub as the Lord of filth because wherever filth is, flies gather, right? Mm-hmm. So the Lord of the right. flies, Lord of filth, Lord of death. Okay, so Jesus, and I'm saying this, I'm building to this because we're going to talk about what's happened in our lifetime just in the last year and a half. But Jesus himself in the New Testament... In the Gospel of Luke, he literally identifies that Beelzebub is Satan. And, and the gods around him, the, demo, the demonic horde, the worship of Beelzebub is the worship of Satan and the demonic realm. Jesus says that. So now that we've settled the history of it, the foundation of it, and who this is and what this is, and it's not just some little, little pagan mind game. This is, this is as deep and as real as it gets. This is the... The worship of Satan by name, by you're calling him Lord, Master, Boss, okay, Baal, okay, or even husband in that sense, in even the perverted sense of what oh, could go with that. Mm-hmm. That's what it's that's what you're doing. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, here's what comes right out of the headline news that so many people missed. And again, it's hiding in plain sight. When I first start describing it, your audience might think, well, there's really nothing to that. But then listen to exactly what happened and how it happened. So 
Arab Spring, we've spoken of that before, it breaks out and all of this collapse starts happening. Civil war in Syria is just horrific. One of the things that happened in Syria was when ISIS was really thick and heavy and really heavy-handed in that area and controlling of, of that area. They were destroying as many ancient artifacts as they could that had that that they felt was completely opposed to to their Islamic uh, worldview. So one of the things that they destroyed was a temple of Baal built by the Romans during the Roman Empire, which was still there, and the archway that represented the gateway going into the temple. Now they destroyed it. Uh, it used to be a huge uh, tourist attraction. You know, like you can go to Israel today and there's stuff from 2,000 years ago. And people come and they see it. Well, Syria and, and other parts of the Middle East, Turkey is a big tourist area, the Mediterranean. Syria had some tourist attractions. That was one of them, the ancient Temple of Baal built by the Romans. Well, ISIS came in, started destroying everything they could get their hands on. Christian, pagan, didn't matter, anything. That was one of the things they destroyed. The, this was in Palmyra, Syria, okay? Now, the archway, they left for a while, but then eventually they destroyed that too. So what happened is this group of people, and I can't remember the name of the group, but again, this was carried in mainstream media because it was announced they were going to first bring it to New York City. But this group of people, kind of under the guise of archaeology and historical preservation, and, and I say under the guise, I, I think some of them were very sincere about that. In other words, they were just infuriated by these ancient relics of, of tourist attraction and ancient history that were just summarily destroyed. Okay? And so they wanted to try to recreate them. Well, recreating the whole temple of Baal was a little too big of a project. But they did recreate the what's called the Palmyra Arch or the archway, the Baal archway. Now, what that represents, by the way, the, the, the replication is is 11 tons, and it's five stories tall. Wow. So, I mean, this... Really that's so that, big. Yeah, and it's to scale. Yeah, it's yeah. not just some, like some little eight-foot arch that you walk through. No, no, this is a huge dedication to Baal, Baal worship. And the way the thing was, was originally structured is that this archway represented literally a, a portal entering from one dimension to the next. Now, I know people say, well, that sounds like science fiction. Well, actually, there's <laughs> if you study of quantum mechanics and all of that. I mean, we, we understand that there are multiple dimensions of reality. The Word of God speaks of that as well. But, but the Baal worship, Satan literally put it upon the hearts and minds of the, the worshipers to, to, to build this arch. So you had, before you could approach the temple, you had to go through there, and you were representing... I'm, I'm now sanctifying myself. I'm coming into the presence of Baal. You know, it's everything God does, Satan perverts and copycats and mimics and, and, and counterfeits. Mm -hmm. So the temple on the Temple Mount, you know, the, there was the outer courts and then the, inner, then the inner sanctuary, then the Holy of Holies, and the priest had to prepare themselves as they came, and then only one priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Well, see, Satan kind of replicates all of that. So he's got the archway where you have to come through that first, and then you go in. All right, so what they did was they, they rebuilt and replicated the arch. Then in 2016, it was announced, this is in early 2016, I think January, February, something like that, New York Times headline article, other world publications, national publications, Washington Post, the Temple of Baal is coming to Times Square 
That was the headline. Something, something very close to that. I'm paraphrasing, but it, that literally was the The temple of Baal will be erected in Times Square. Well, that headline, you know, really infuriated a lot of people. There was an outcry. I mean, the whole evangelical Christian community said, what? And, and then even people in New York City, even if they weren't believers or, you know, Bible-believing Christians, they were kind of freaked out by that. So there was such an outcry that they backed off and said, no, 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 well, we, we'll, we'll do something else. We won't do that. But so what happened was they changed the wording because it really wasn't the temple of Baal, but it was the archway that represented coming into the presence of Baal. So what they did just a few months later, they opened with this production in London, okay? Now, their, their headline was, we, we want to take this on a world tour to show the world this, this, this relic that we've had to recreate to show you what, you know, nasty ISIS did. And then their theme was, because this represents freedom. Well, mm. if you go back into the ancient historical writings of the worship of Baal, that's right. That's exactly what it represents. So again, hiding in plain sight. This represents freedom. And then they said it represents victory. And then they, then they said this will show that ISIS can never win. Well, a, a, an arch to Baal is representative that ISIS cannot win? That, that didn't even make sense. No. But what they did was they couldn't get it into New York City. And it, by the way, it wasn't the temple of Baal, but that's what the headline said. And that's what everybody reacted to. It was this archway. So they opened it in London, the number one economic capital of the European Union then, before Brexit started, and also number one or number two economic capital of the world. In New York City and London are constantly back and forth on that. Um, and so they opened it there. And again, your audience is probably thinking, well, what's the big deal? It's just a little historical artifact. And London, of course, one of the great major cities of the world. Why, why not? Okay. But... Here's where the thing gets creepy. They opened it. They aligned the opening and the unveiling of it to correspond with Beltane, B-E-L-T-A-N-E. Your, your, your viewers can look all of that up. And that is, that literally translates to the fires of Baal. And it is an internationally recognized celebration of Baal. It's their holidays. Their it's like a, like a Halloween. It's, yeah, it's like a Halloween, if you will. Okay. And so, in the fires of Baal, Beltane, it's, it, it, it's, that's what the celebration is called, that goes back to the fires of infant sacrifice in the Old Testament. Mm. Beltane, that's what it means. So, they unveiled this thing in honor. Now, you say, well, they, maybe they didn't know what they were doing, but just watch. <laughs> But they unveiled this thing in honor of Baal and the fires of Baal on the day of Beltane in London, the economic capital of the world and of the European Union. And we know how all those might tie into prophecy. And so here it is. There's the first unveiling. They tried to do it in New York City first. Well, what's in New York City? Well, the United Nations. Ground zero, you know, the, uh, another economic capital of the world. If not number one, it's number two. I mean, right there with London. So they opened it in London. They kind of stilled the waters back in America. Then they redid the headline. And they said, the Palmyra Arch. They didn't even put the word bail in it. Hmm. The Palmyra Arch, the historical artifact, will be on display in New York City. And everybody went, oh, that's cool. 
You, you it's see, like, it's like bringing a Ramesses uh, from ancient Egypt display through and yeah. coming through the, you yeah. know, the, through the museums. And That's all right. That. That's right. So, but then what they did, they did, they took the same thing that everybody reacted. They bring it to New York City, home of the United Nations. Now, I, I'm emphasizing this because it's going to go a couple of other places too on this world tour. In every place, I'll go ahead and give it away. Every place they take it is a globalist economic financial power center which is what Baal worship is all about, power and, 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 and wealth and, and freedom. And that's what they're declaring. So they move it from London. Then, a few, then just a few, some weeks later, a month, month and a half later, they take it to New York. Now it's not called the Temple of Baal. It's not even called the Arch of Baal. It's called the Palmyra Arch. Oh, and it's a historical display, but they display it now in a park right across from City Hall in New York, which is just a block or two away from Ground Zero and not too far from the United Nations. So it's right there. And the mayor comes out, makes a big speech about how this represents freedom. And they never say, freedom from what? What are you talking about? But again, the historical understanding of the worship of Baal, that was the theme. Freedom from Yahweh. Freedom from the Lord. Freedom from his uh, regulations. Freedom from his law. Freedom from his word. All right. So they unveil it in New York. Well, what, by the time it gets to New York and people like us are watching this, and I was not the only one to see this. I was one that was outspoken early on, but there were many others too. They first saw it in London, opened on Beltane, and they said, that's, that's, a, that's pushing just a little. I mean, if, you're, if it's just gonna be a historical display, you just want to display, like you said, Ramses and all that, that's fine. But you, but you, you purposely time it for Beltane then you bring it to New York, this economic engine, the center of world power, the United Nations, the, you know, this, this economic engine of the United States, the number one superpower. You put it just a few blocks from ground zero. You put it right in front of City Hall. I mean, that was, now it's a little more in your face. The next place they took it was to Dubai. That makes sense. They mm. took it to Dubai and they coordinated it with the opening of the World Governance Summit. 4,000 people from 130 nations of the world, world leaders were there. Big name people, Elon Musk, speaker, and a bunch of, bunch, of, bunch of globalists. They were all the speakers. Barack Obama was there. Barack Obama was a part of helping to get the World Governance Council started. One of their themes in the headline news was one of the uh, spokespeople for it said, well, what we're trying to do is to bring all the nations of the world together under one umbrella. And I'm going to put quotes because that's a quote I'm quoting. That's what this is about bringing all the nations of the world together under one umbrella. Well, that's scary. Well, that's the Antichrist spirit. That's the, that's the globalist spirit. Okay, so, so now follow the trail because it goes one more place. London on Beltane. New York, United Nations, Ground Zero, world's most powerful superpower nation, economy, money, power, everything that goes with it. Dubai, the gateway between Africa, Asia, in Europe, the financial center of that whole area. What's happening there? The World Governance Council. How did the World Governance Council open? With the unveiling of the Arch of Baal. It was all a part of the ceremony. So 
that happens now, people like me and others, now we're watching, now, now then I, I'm starting to write about it. And other people writing about it saying, this is in your face. Mm-hmm. This is in your face. It's like Satan's taking a victory march of the power centers of the world. He said, it's kind of, you know how, how we do as kids, you know, put a, a basket full of rolls on the table and there's a hundred people on the table. And we go, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. You know, we touch all the rolls because <laughs> nobody else will want to touch it if we touch it. That, that little children's <laughs> game we play. I, I, that's how I compared this. It's like Satan saying, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. London's mine, New York's mine, Dubai's mine, World Governance Council, the United Nations, Beltane, the power, the money, the control, these are mine, head of the UN, European Union, you know, the most influential nation of the world, Dubai, the, the, the New York of, 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 of Middle East, if you will. Um, then, a few months later, it goes to Florence, Italy, at the opening of the G7 conference. Mm. Another kind of United Nations, many people believe a globalist-minded mm-hmm. institution. And they opened the G7 conference with a ceremony to the arch. So, you know, I know people listening to this can say, well, maybe you're just reading too much into it. Maybe I am, but I don't think so. Because I know what the scriptures say about the last days. And, and the, the scriptures don't use these words, but this is what it says. The hiding in plain sight of the demonic, the demonic yes. outpouring. There will be, Paul says, the spirit clearly says in the last days that there will be a demonic, and he doesn't use the word outpouring, but that's what it means, that will lead to apostasy mm-hmm. and will also lead to seducing spirits that will, that will just kind of sweep and capture the world, will seduce the world. And, and that's where we are, guys. And, and so this was a hiding in plain sight. I said, Baal takes a victory tour is what I wrote about and talked about. And, he, and he's just saying, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. And those four places kind of represent, you know, the power control structures of the world. Mm-hmm. And it was all done under the guise of, well, we're just presenting a historical artifact. Yeah, but why in those places? And why do they ha- does there have to be a ceremony attached to the opening of globalist agenda things? Why did it have to be on Beltane, the celebrating of killing your children in the fire? Well, and this goes back to the whole concept that, you know, we write off so many things as coincidence. Yes. Like, this could have very well gone, well, this is just a coincidence. Yeah. And that's why we don't pay attention to prophecy. And that's why we don't see the unravel- unraveling of prophecy happening in today's age. It's hiding in plain sight? That's right. It's right before our eyes, and so we dismiss it. That's right. And today, when we're just pummeled mm. with information, 24-7, and by the way, there's some good to that. I mean, I love the internet. I love the technology. We're using it now. Yes. I mean, so I mean, it's and I use it every day of my life uh, for for the gospel and for good stuff. I, I hope anyway. I'm trying to, uh, you know, and and that's what I ask the Lord to use it for. And so there's good stuff. But at the same time, we've eaten of the tree of good and evil. Mm-hmm. The knowledge of good and evil. And everything that's good, Satan is there to pervert it, to twist it, to counterfeit it, to use it for his. And it becomes evil. It becomes black and filthy and dark. Uh, we know the, and I'm not going to just give the litany of filth that's on the internet right here on this show, but we know what all the mm-hmm. litany of filth is on the internet. Not only is it out there, but, but what I tell people is this has now given the demonic a platform they, that they've never had before through technology. And I think a lot of that technological information may be even coming from the demonic realm mm-hmm. into the mind seducing. Our spirits are being seduced. Here, eat of this piece of fruit. Eat of this. Eat of this tree. Eat of this tree. Look what you can create. You can create this. Look at 
look how you can use this. Now you can do this. Now you can know this. It's like a new Tower of Babel. Now everybody can speak the same language. We don't have to worry about boundaries and borders and languages anymore because we've got this new tower that reaches to the heavens. You know, mm. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I'm seeing happening right now. We're the first generation in the history of the planet not only to see these things happen, but think to have the technology. Do you know how impossible it would have been just 100 years ago to rebuild and reconstruct the Palmyra Arch, 11 tons, five stories, then assemble it and disassemble it and take it all over the world from London to New York to Dubai to Florence, Italy? I mean, just 100 years ago, it would have been almost impossible. Prior to that, it would have been impossible, but we can now do it all. And we can do it within weeks. We just move it all around. And we can all see it happening. And we can see it and instantly we can watch it. We can all participate if we desire Mm -hmm. to in the ceremonies and the unfolding and the process. We can all go around and say, this represents freedom. Freedom from what? Well, that reminds me of something very uh, interesting. My family's a sports family. And what you say about... uh, happy ceremonies and the world coming together. How many people have said, look at the uh, Olympics opening ceremonies and watch yes. it carefully? And people go, oh, that's nothing. That's, you're just making it all up. That's all coincidence. Uh-huh. Well, is it? Or is it the same thing where all these powers are coming together? Let's hide in plain sight and yes. suddenly show the world what we really want yes. them to believe in. Yeah. How about the, how about the uh, halftime shows at, uh, at Super Bowls? A lot of those, those have been, been kind documented, of too, haven't they? have to be bizarre and even some of them very occultic in nature, depending upon who the entertainer is that's the chief cook. Because a lot of entertainers in Hollywood literally, literally and, and I've got these guys quoted in some of my writings and resource from their own mouths, their own quotes about how they... They channel the spirits and for their own, you know, creativity and that they connect. And they, and they don't use the word, we worship Satan, but that's what they're describing. Mm-hmm. Not every star does that, but some of the mega stars do. They have written about it. They have spoken about it. They have done interviews on it. And so we know that whole mindset is thick in the entertainment industry. We know that. So now, um, can I relate the Goddard Tunnel to all of this? Do we have time? Or? We do. I think maybe we should. Let's save that for the second okay. half. Okay. Absolutely. Because that, that kind of ties right into this whole thing. Another thing that happened right in front of our face that was really even more out in your face than the than the bail tour was. Mm. Well, and we forget as believers that again at the core of it, it's good versus evil, it's God versus Satan, and we get stuck in our everyday lives. And um, so when we see things like this, we don't even consider digging deeper or right. or looking further. But like you said, Satan has a plan, and yeah. he's frustrated, he's angry, yeah. he's furious. I mean, he wants. He wants the world to be his. I mean, that's his end goal. Yes, and it's headed that way. And for those that have eyes to see, we can see it. What other uh, examples can we give? We mentioned just before the break about the Goddard Tunnel. What's that about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the way you say in your face because that's what I want to reemphasize. We're the first generation to see the in your face outpouring. Listen, there's always been demonic outpouring. I mean, go all the way back to all the torture, mayhem, wars, Mm -hmm. the brutality, the slavery, the sexual perversion that goes all the way back through history. That's demonic outpouring. But today, we're the first generation to have in your face, 24-7, internet, cell phones, media, entertainment industry. I mean, it's just, just, it's just it, children carry devices around in their pockets that they can access 24-7. So the demonic have a platform now 
to pummel the world with these seducing spirits. Does that make sense? So you ask now about another example, because we were just talking about the Baal tour and the Baal worship and Baal meaning Satan. That's what Jesus said. It's, it's, it means Lord, Master, other than Yahweh. That's Satan. Well, interestingly, there are several passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that speak of worshiping the goat demons. That word is actually used, the goat demons. And when I came across those some years back, I said, now that's something. I've read the Bible through so many times. I don't know that I've ever remember seeing about goat demons. What's a goat demon? Well, I did a lot of research, and basically that's where this whole Baphomet thing came from, a half goat, half man mm-hmm. imagery that came into the minds yes. of the ancients, and they built statues and, and, and altars to worship the goat demons. And, and apparently, you see, we laugh at that sometimes, say, oh, a bunch of pagan ignoramuses. Well, no, those were pretty smart people and cultures. I mean, they built things. They engineered things. They were not... A lot of things that we can't replicate today. Exactly, is what I'm saying. So, so why would they spend so much time and energy and effort in their life on building these altars and these images and then gathering for rituals and ceremonies because it worked? Mm-hmm. The demonic realm would infest and inhabit that location. It was like, a, like, why did God build the temple? He says, here's where you come to meet with me. Here's where I will come and meet with you. And that worked. And that worked. Mm-hmm. Satan replicates. Mm. See, we got to get it out of our mind that demon worship and pagan worship and pagan altars and all of that. Well, that's just that that's just superstition. Really, why are the first two commandments about that? Mm-hmm. Mm. Thou shalt have no other gods, little g, s before you. Comes from the word Elohim. You'll have no other Elohim before you. God calls himself the ultimate Elohim, capital E. Yes. But other Elohim from the divine realm that are fallen. You shall have no other gods, and you will not build any graven images. And I'm going to use the word altar because that's also what it means. The first two commandments are about this very thing that has been the, the temptation of the world ever since the fall in the garden. Okay? So I'm reading about the goat demons, and I, and, and I see that not only... Did they have it before nation of Israel was, was, was a nation? But some of the kings of Israel under the divided nation, they reinstituted goat demon worship. Hmm. And what was one of the central things? They would sacrifice their children to the fires. And they would have all kind of sexual perversion. And all, I mean, it was just, it's Baal worship in another form. Now it's half man, half goat. Okay? And it's Satan. It's the demonic realm. So they build an altar, they build the statue, they gather around it, they start chanting, they start worshiping, and the demonic shows up. And, and there, there is power that's exhibited. There's changing of personalities and spirits, and people say, oh, this is real, we've tapped into the power. Yes, you have. You've tapped into the dark side. You have. Now, that's the history of it. Now let's go right into our headlines. Hiding in plain sight, right in front of our face. I mentioned the Goddard Tunnel, Geo. T-T-H-A-R-D, I think is how it's spelled. Switzerland. This happened in 2016, maybe 2017. Uh, It's very recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, But here's what happened. The Goddard Tunnel is a railway tunnel, an underground through the mountains and underground deep railway railway tunnel in Switzerland. It's the deepest and the longest such railway tunnel in the world. 
It's 35.6 miles long. I don't know that I would go on a train underground for 35 <laughs> miles, but anyway, there it is. It's the Goddard Tunnel. All right, it's this great achievement of man, this technological engineering achievement, so they're going to celebrate it. I, I kid you not, there are videos of this. So what I'm going to say, if your audience doesn't know this, again, it's going to be so sensational. And again, I tell you, I don't over-sensationalize anything. I just bring stuff that people have never heard before, but it's right there. They can go back and research it, and it's in mainstream media because it was reported gleefully. Here's what happened. The opening of the Goddard Tunnel, the ceremony, they set up this big stage. I think it was near the entrance of it on one side of it. They invited powerful industry and government leaders from around the European Union especially. I think they invited other dignitaries of the world, but those were the main ones they were focusing on. They set up bleachers and they put up a big stage to have this opening ceremony. And, and there were, you know, thousands of people there. Mm-hmm. And they had a dignitary area with the big, you know, red sashes and ribbons and all that. So for the dignitaries, the world leaders to sit. So out comes this parade. It looks like a, a Macy's Day parade or something. I mean, you know, and, 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 and out come all of these figures. They've got people suspended from cables like they're flying through the air. And you start looking at all of this. And again, all this is on video. So you can see it. You can see it on YouTube. A lot of the, the news articles that wrote about it back then, 16, uh, 2016, 2017, they embedded some of the videos in their articles. And most of them didn't see or say what we're getting ready to see or say. They were celebrating it. But you have this parade, and before long you're looking and you're saying, this is weird. This is almost like going to a, a halftime show at the Super Bowl and saying, there's some occultic stuff in here. Well, this was in your face because you began to realize that these people were dressed in such a way that they were supposed to be representing, it looked like, otherworldly uh, um, beings, um, demons, angels, whatever, you know, from, really? from the dimension. Yeah, oh yeah, that's how they were dressed. Mm-hmm. And again, some were suspended and kind of flying and others were walking. They, it was all choreographed. They were doing a dance and then the drums were pounding and the music playing and then the next thing that is presented is a, it's, it's, it's a live person but dressed up as the goat man. Oh my goodness. Who comes out He's sitting upon a throne, and then they start simulating homosexual sex acts in front of him as worship. This is at the opening of a railway tunnel, the Goddard Tunnel. Who would have thought of this? I'm telling you, and people are up there cheering and clapping, and the leaders of the world are are watching it. Well, it's dance art. It's theater. Yes, that's exactly. It's like the Palmyra Arch. It's history. It's archaeology. Okay, that's right. But where did you take it, and when did you open it? Beltane, really, and all of these governance centers and globalist centers? What are you saying? We know what it, we know what Baal worship is. We know what you're saying. Again, we know what goat demons are. We know what Baphomet is, the most recognizable satanic image in the world. With the horns. Yes, the goat man. As a matter of fact, you might remember, I think it was Oklahoma and Arkansas, they were being sued by the atheist groups about the Ten Commandments and everything. And then they they said, well, we want to put our own, if you're going to keep that up, we want to put our own uh, uh, monument to go beside it. It's only fair. And so there were lawsuits, and finally the the governments acquiesced and said, okay, what do you want to put there? Baphomet, the goat man. 
See, I didn't hear that either. Oh, yeah, yeah. Again, mm. your audience can get on the internet. You check this out. Oklahoma, Arkansas, Baphomet, Goatman, Ten Commandments. And again, I've written to this a lot and, and, and I've got it all resourced, so I know what I'm talking about. I want to assure your audience, but they can check this out. And it's worse than that. It shows the Goatman sitting on a throne. It's in stone. That's their monument. He's got a scepter. The uh, only thing he has is a loincloth. So he's nude except for a loincloth. And on one side is a little girl, and on the other side is a little boy, and they're bowed before him, and they're looking up him at him adoringly. So there's even a spirit of pedophilia there as well. Oh, no. That was what they wanted to put on the court. And then, the, and then the legislature said, you know what? No, we're taking the Ten Commandments down. You can't do that. We're not putting anything up there. I mean, it, 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 because it was so vile. Mm-hmm. That was what they wanted to put. And, you know, it... it the goat demon, all the way back to the Old Testament, that God said, don't you ever put one of those up, or I will bring my wrath upon you. And some of the kings of Israel did, and God brought his wrath. Well, it's more common than people think. I mean, that whole goat demon head, you think yes. of the upside-down um, pentagram. Yep. That's what it traces, what it, his exactly. head. That's it, based on that. Yep. But- Pastor Carl, yes. it's all a coincidence, isn't it? I yes, mean, it's, it's just it's a coincidence. I mean, it doesn't mean real. anything. And please hear me. Listen, I, I come from a law enforcement background. Sometimes people say, well, you're a conspiracy theorist. I said, well, 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 wait a minute. It depends on how you define conspiracy theorists. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, was, I did criminal investigations for a while. So, yeah, almost all crimes begin with a conspiracy. And what a good investigator does is I develop a theory about a conspiracy. And I try to prove it wrong. You know, in other words, if you were accused of uh, a conspiracy to murder, and so one of the things that I would do as an investigator, one technique I would use, is to try to prove that you couldn't have done it. Because if I can do that, if I, who I'm investigating the, the murder, can clear you with alibis and DNA and all that, then I know that I need to move on to somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's not the opposite that you see in the movies, like, okay, I'm focusing on you, I'm going to prove you did it. Well... That's one way to do it, but you can get in trouble because I can kind of, in my mind, m- make it that you've done it and kind of, kind of force the evidence that way. But so, so yes, I, I kind of am a conspiracy theorist, but not one of those wild-eyed, crazy ones. I just know what the Word of God says. I see the Goddard Tunnel demonstration. I see the Baal Victory Tour. I connect the dots, and then I say, I could be wrong about this, but what do you think? There it is. Here's what the Word of God says. Here's what they're doing. Here's what they're saying. Here's what they're celebrating. I don't think this is a coincidence. I think this ties into the last day scriptures about Satan is furious. He knows his time is short. The Spirit clearly says in the last days there's going to be a demonic outpouring. Book of Revelation talks about the seducing spirit seducing the kings of the world, going to those thrones of power to seduce them. I mean, it's all right there in the scriptures. And now we're the first generation in the history of the planet to have the platform of technology that it can be just pumped before our eyes continually. And it's almost like an intoxicating beverage where, where you know, the first two or three or four sips or the first glass or two, you know, sweet to the taste and everything. But before long, we're just, you know, we're just so intoxicated by it that we we're think everything's lovely. We're mm-hmm. desensitized. That's right. That's, That's what's happening. So I know you were sarcastically asking, isn't this coincidence? But that's how Satan does it. And, yeah. You know, the old, old cliche of boiling the frog slowly. 
intoxicating, seducing, desensitizing. Yeah, that's what's happening. So, so yes, I am a conspiracy theorist. I do see these things and connect the dots. But, um, but again, I, I try not to over-sensationalize. I just take what it is and, and try to wake the church up to what the times we're living in. We have to be aware. We have to be um, conscious of what is happening throughout the world. And, you know, things like this would have never been tolerated in the Old Testament. If we're really getting down to it, God would have stopped it right away. There would be a stoning before anything. (laughs) And and if you consider it, I mean, look how long it took for them to build the altar of the calf when Moses was up in the mountain. I mean, it didn't take long. Mm -hmm. It didn't take years. Right. You know, I don't even think that he was gone for months. He was gone for 40 days. Right. 40 days. Right. Right. Really? And then they had already turned their back on God and built another altar. Right. When they had all the the supplies that they needed, all of the goods that you know kept right. them alive. Right. Now speaking of conspiracy, yeah. Deep state. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, we only have a few minutes for deep state, but we want to know. So this is all part of a of a grander plan. It's not necessarily just the worship of, of Satan. I mean, truly it is at the core of it. But explain deep state to us. Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 the deep state, of course, for decades and decades and decades, there have been people writing through sometimes fictional novels. I think, I think of Larry Burkett's book, The Illuminati, that was yes. written. Some, you know, and people read that and they said, oh my gosh, this is a fictional novel. But yeah, I, you know, this kind of stuff is, is happening. So... So you have like Illuminati, Bohemian Grove, world leaders, power structures, you know, power groups, meetings, networking, fraternal organizations, Mm -hmm. if you will, of networking. And you got to remember a lot of this stuff kind of of was birthed um, long before there was anything like the internet. I mean, that was how the power people networked were through these organizations. Okay. So... So what has happened, I'm convinced, in the geopolitical, physical realm, we are watching. It's now being uncovered. By the way, you know, I, I've told you before, I don't claim to be a prophet, but one thing I said a couple of years ago, I said it on some major television shows. They said, well, what do you think the next couple of years are going to hold? And I said, I think there's going to be a great unveiling. The Lord has put it on my heart that things are going to be exposed like never before. I didn't have a clue what I was talking about. That was just on my heart. Now look what's happening. I mean, you know, the covers of it's like the Wizard of Oz looking behind the curtain and the little dogs pulling the curtain. One of the things we've unsposed, fake, uh, un, uh, uncovered and exposed, fake media, deep state, the connection. Mm. And the connection to all of that to power structures and power leaders into the even into the three-letter agencies now we're finding out yes. fbi cia dhs you know nsa i mean we're, we're finding all this stuff out it's being exposed it's being unveiled so this stuff's been going on since the most ancient of days these conspiracies and intrigues and palace intrigues and attempted coups of i mean that's been going on since the nation of israel and before in the egyptian empire but but now we've moved in you know, to the to our modern age and the United States of America and a constitution and the rule of law and you know we're we're immune to that. No, no, no. Now we're finding out what many people have feared for many many decades is that 
in addition to what we see of the government, the three tiers of government, and we elect a president and our congressman and all that, and the judges, and we're moving along. In the meantime, we get up, we pay the bills, and we mow the grass, we go to work, and we say, you know, and everybody's happy, and we watch the football game, and we watch our TV shows, and everybody's being entertained by the gladiators. I mean, the entertainers, <laughs> Roman Empire. Because hey, see, while they kept them entertained with the gladiators, mm -hmm. while the people were congregated cheering at the football game, I mean the gladiator games, the intrigue was good. The deep state was operating back here. The facade before the Roman people was, you've got your senate and you've got your... But the deep state was, you had emperors and senators cutting deals and they were selling out the Roman Empire to the highest bidder continually. And the thing they got in return was a promise to keep their land, to get more land and more power and more prestige. They didn't care who ruled Rome mm. as long as they were a part of it, the deep state. All right, it's happening in America. It's been happening in America. We feared that that would happen. Our early founding fathers told us, we've given you a constitutional republic if you can keep it. But to keep a constitutional republic requires men and women that are serving in government that have, that have no, nobody's perfect and nobody's sinless, but that have a decent heart who value rule of law and freedom and value what we have. The problem with that, though, is that's a demonic nesting place and a breeding ground because where you have that kind of freedom, you also have the ability for Satan and the seducing spirits. Mm -hmm. So what has happened is this deep state, this, this, it's, a, it's nothing less than an attempted soft coup of America. I say soft because they don't want to go up to the White House with military no. and take out Congress and because they know the 350 million of us and half of us have guns. I mean, we'd go out of our minds. But it's got to be, it's got to appear to those of us that are mowing the grass and paying the bills and going to the ball games. It's got to appear to us that everything that's happening is this, well, it's just happening. Well, the court ruled, Supreme Court said... Well, Congress said, well, the president signed an executive order and all that's constitutional. And so, you know, and the FBI investigated and they didn't find anything wrong. And the CIA says, no, there's nothing to it. So mm. it's got to be, a, you see how that works? It's like a million little baby steps. That's right. And the media, the New York Times reported and the Washington Times reported and CNN said, that's the deep state. When all of those things, and it's taken them decades to do this, when the, the left, the extreme leftists, the extreme liberals. I'm not going to get into Democrats and Republicans and independents because there's evil and good in all of those people. Yes. But I'm saying this mindset, this demonic mindset, it's born in Satan's mind. I'm convinced he knows that America has to come down. Now, that doesn't mean we have to burn up in flames and go away, but it means the America we envision, constitution, rule of law, law and order, Judeo-Christian foundation, declaration, you know, that has to go away, at least in the minds of people, in order for the one world order, the satanic, demonic, antichrist spirit. Because right now we're kind of standing in the way of that with our, with our uber power, our hyper power. We're not a superpower, we're a hyper power. Take the next two or three superpowers combined to even come close to what we have. Our economic engine, who we are as a nation, the influence we have in the world, the Judeo-Christian foundation. And we can, if we think back over the last hundred years, we've seen the slow yes. erosion. Outlaw this, outlaw that, outlaw this. Outlaw. Tell our children, generation after generation, there is no God. You come from monkeys. I mean, everything they can do to bring this down, 
now we're finally in the age of internet, instantaneous information. Now we have an administration that not only is exposing deep state, but he was a victim of it, apparently. Mm -hmm. And so now he's really infuriated and the people around him, so they're pulling, they're like the little dog that belonged to Dorothy, pulling back the curtains and saying, look, that's the pushing the, lev pushing the buttons and pulling the levers. That's what's happening. It's deep state. Now, behind all of that, I say there's an even deeper state, and I'm borrowing the title of uh, Colonel uh, Robert McGinnis' book, The Deeper State. He's a good friend of mine, and I've talked to you about this before. He's a great guy. He works in the Pentagon, but he's also a very godly Christian man. And he, and, and, and he speaks of, yeah, there's the deep state, and he's aware of it. He calls it out as much as he can. He says, but, the, but it's really about the deeper state, mm -hmm. and that's what we've been talking about. It is, mm. we see it in the political realm, we see it in the media, we see it in the entertainment industry, we see it sometimes in the halls of Congress, we see it in the government, we see it in the courts, we see it in the three-letter agencies. Now we're seeing more and more and more of it, we get it. Larry Burkett was right, those guys were right. But what we need to understand is, it's even deeper than that. It goes right to the mind of Satan himself and the Word of God told us these things were gonna happen. And out of that, the Antichrist will be born. And I think so. Government yeah. And yeah. I don't, prophecy will be fulfilled. I don't see how it can't fit together like that. It's mm. unbelievable. Yeah. These are, the, these are the times we're living in. Very prophetic times. It is. So we have a few minutes left. Okay. What would be your message? We've, we've done a series of these shows now with you. What do you want people to take away? What do you want them to know um, or get out of, out of these shows yeah. from okay. you? Well, thanks. Well, first of all, I, 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 I'm not trying, I don't want to appear to be patronizing. I mean this. I'm a pastor, first and foremost, okay? That's why I tell people I don't set dates. I'm not a sensationalist. I'm not, you know, I have to feel like I have to say that because I just want people to know I'm, I'm not coming before the cameras of the world trying to be sensational. I'm a pastor. I, I tell people, I tell Christians, get, enjoy life, mow the grass, pay the bills, educate your children, save for your retirement and your future. No man knows the day or the hour right. in that way. But, I mean, we can know the seasons and we can see it when it's coming and we know about the feast of the Lord and how it's probably all going to unfold. But as far as just, you know, wringing our hands, the sky is falling, it's the end of the world. And I tell people, I tell the, the church, I say, well, look, well, when the Bible speaks of the last days, and the end of all things, it's not the, it's the end of man's wicked rule and reign and the beginning of the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. No more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more crime, corruption, and war, and murder, and rape, and sexual perversion, and how can, I mean, we, not how can we not want that? In fact, the Bible says, pray, encourage each other with these words. Pray for the speed, the speed of its coming. Pray for these things. Encourage each other. Look forward to the coming of the day of the Lord. If you're a born-again believer, I say to God's people, enjoy life. There's so much in this world that is amazing. Mm -hmm. The beauty and the grandeur of it. Children, grandchildren, families, friends, church family, people, relationships. Enjoy that. Relationships, the only thing we take into eternity anyway. That's right. Our relationship with God through Jesus Christ and relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly and family, especially those that are saved. So those are the important things of life. But you, in the midst of that, we have to pay the bills. We have to put food on the table. We have to go to work. You got to mow the grass unless you want to live in a jungle. I mean, you know, it's just the stuff of life. Life goes on, yes. 
but don't go on through life blindly yes. and misinformed or ill-informed. But enjoy life, but in the midst of it, understand these little 70, 80, 90 years, if we're blessed that God has given us, it's not to see how important, powerful, or rich we can get. It's to see how much we can advance the kingdom of God while we're doing the rest of this stuff as Amen. we enjoy life. I, I, that's that's my, my, my brief message. I just want people to know that that's why I'm... I'm, thank you for having me on these shows. I mean, my goodness, I'm so honored. But and you've given me another opportunity before an even wider audience to say these things as a pastor because I'm just, um, I, I am afraid that so much of the church in America is missing these kinds of truths. So anyway, that's... That's what I would say. Thank you for letting me say that. No, of course. We have to be watchmen. That's what we're called to do at the, at the end times is be watchmen. And, yes. And while we do have to pay bills and take care of the family, um, yes. we have to remember that you know, I do. we're here with purpose. <laughs> we are not to be ignorant of these things. Yes. Nobody mows my grass. I mow my own grass. And you can come by anytime, see me on my lawn more out front. Yeah, so, yeah that's right. You have to do it with purpose. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus is what I tell people. And then I just I use the words of, uh, of uh, Mordecai to Esther. In the book of Esther, I use these words all the time. Look, we've been raised up for such a time as yeah. this. This is, the, this is our time. This is mm-hmm. our little 70 or 80 years. We're living in the most prophetic times since the first coming of Jesus Christ. We've already proven that and talked about that in past shows. So here we are. So what do we do? We advance the kingdom. Mm-hmm. We open doors. We open eyes. We pull back the curtain. We show people what's really happening in the deeper state of everything. Well, why do we do that? Because that's why God has raised us up. He's trusting us with this. I'm, I'm blown away by that. Who am I that God would use me? Amen. Who are y'all that God would use you? Yeah, I mean, we're all who here are for we? a reason, even though we yeah. don't realize that's it. We're here. Right. We're, we're born at this time because yes. God put us here yes. at this time because we have a purpose. Yeah. Even if we don't right now recognize a it. Mandate. We're the mm-hmm. Esthers of our day. Oh, you know? how beautiful, Pastor Gallops. Thank it was you. wonderful Thank having you, you oh, here. Thank you. My honor. Thank you. We were very blessed by your uh, your talks with us, teaching us, sharing with us. We hope that you've been blessed by this program, uh, and we'll see you next Shabbat Night Live. Turned off by religion and hypocrisy? Hate being preached to? Something missing in your life? You haven't been getting the whole truth, the whole Bible, and the Hebraic roots of the scriptures. Get answers and treasures now on Solace Radio. Let's pray. Avinu Makenu, our Father, our King, Abba, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you left our scriptures to study. We thank you that you did not leave us as orphans, but you sent the Rach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to come alongside and to teach us and to bring all things to remembrance. Open up our hearts, Lord, that we might see in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, we started a series of what I would call a Sabbath walk through Scripture. And we're walking from Bereshit through the Word of God and seeing what the Word God reveals to us about the Sabbath. And so last week, we covered the beginning, and I just want to summarize very quickly that we saw the various concluding points, that God and the Spirit and the Word are involved in creating the universe. God speaks, the Spirit moves, and the Word is there. And so when he says, let us make man in our image, he's not talking to the angels. The angels, are, angels did not create man. 
God alone created man. And so when he says, let us create, let us make, we have to see that he's referring to what's been revealed to us about God's nature, that he's Father, Word, and Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we see that in the beginning, that it says God, and literally the, the, the Hebrew word for God there is Elohim, which is plural, meaning gods. And so Elohim, though it says gods, when it speaks to him, it speaks to him as singular. God's he. And that reason why is showing the plural nature of the one true God. It's showing that this one God exists eternally as Father, Word, and Spirit. And so we see the Father who's God speaking. We see the Word that is spoken and we see the Spirit of God moving on the face of the earth. And so all of them are involved in the bringing about the the creation of the earth. We saw that, that the seventh day of creation that God rested. So he does six days of creation, and the seventh day he rested. He stopped the work of creation. We saw that um, it is called the Sabbath because it is the day that God ceased his work of creation. We see that God blesses the seventh day. We see that God sets the seventh day aside and makes it holy. So there are four things that we see that God ended his special creative work of making the heavens and the earth. He rested. The Hebrew word for rest there is Shabbat, not Shabbat, but Shabbat. But Shabbat is based on the same root word. So same meaning, to stop, to cease, to end, to bring to an end. God stopped. He rested. He, he has, it's like a rest note in music. For those who know music, you, you have all the notes and it's telling you how long to play each note. And then you have a rest note. And basically it's a note to tell you don't do anything for a certain amount of time. You just stop. Oh, that's a rest note. Stop playing. Don't do anything. Well, that's what God did. He rested. He got to a note and said, oh, I'm not going to do anything. I'm, I'm done with all my creative activities. And I've brought it to an end for my special creation of the universe. We saw that he, he blessed the word barach, which means to kneel, to put favor, to lower yourself that something else could be lifted up. And he blesses the seventh day. He, he lifts it up beyond the other six days. In the other six days, he says things were good. But he takes the seventh day and he lifts it up above the six days and says, hey, this, this day is blessed. And not only is the seventh day blessed, but he sets it apart. He did not set apart the other six days. He set apart the seventh day and said, this is holy, this is set apart, this is blessed. And, I, and that's what he did. And, I, and, and again, I got my own imagination just like you guys do, that if you ever worked on a project where you really did a lot of things, took you a number of days or weeks or whatever, and you're working and working and working, and when you finish that last nail, that last polish, that last thing that you had to do, and it's done, there's nothing else to do. And if you can feel me on this, just raise your hand where I'm going with this. And you finish that last thing, whatever it was, and you set aside, you just kind of step back from all this labor and work, and you just kind of admire what you've done. Like, that looks good. That's, ah. You just kind of walk around it. Oh, look at that. That looks real good. And you're not going to do anything else. You're like, it's complete. It's done. I'm finished. That's kind of the image I have of God. He's been creating his first day, second day, all the way through. And he gets to the end of his creation on the sixth day. And the seventh day comes and he steps back. And he looks at creation and he goes, it's good. This is good. 
And so we, we see this, and we talked about that last week. However, there's some other things we had to acknowledge. One of the things I pointed out to you is that the Scriptures reveal things over time. That makes sense. Have you ever gotten meet somebody that you kind of like and you start to hang out with them? And as you hang out with them, you learn more and more about them, what they like, what they dislike, what things they do on certain days of the week, what things they don't do. Do they like broccoli? Do they like peas? Do they like ice cream? Do they like FUD records over five guys? Which one is it? Do you like Popeye's chicken sandwich over Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwich? Which one is the one that's the best? I did the chicken test. I finally was able to go to Popeye's and get a chicken sandwich and go to Chick-fil-A and get a chicken sandwich. I brought it home, and Benjamin was there, Rebecca was there, and we cut it up. And we all had our little piece, and we gave our comments. I I still feel the Chick-fil-A sandwich is better than than the Popeye's chicken. It was a good try. I I will eat Popeye's when Chick-fil-A is closed, and I want a chicken sandwich. And as a Popeye's, I'll get a Popeye chicken sandwich. But if there's a Chick-fil-A, sorry, I'm going for the Chick-fil-A. You do your own test and figure out which one is better than the other. But my point is, as you spend time with someone, you learn about them. And it's the same thing with the creator of the universe. The more time you spend with him, the more you learn about him, what he likes, what he dislikes, what he's done, what he's doing, where he's going. This is why we fellowship with him, to get to know him better so that we will be more like him. And so we learn a few things from the beginning because that's just the beginning. And we haven't learned everything about God, just a little bit that he's revealed to us. But here's a couple of things that we have to pull from the scriptures that we have gotten through, which is only first two, three chapters of Genesis. Number one, there's no information on what God did or did not do on the Sabbath. He just ceased to work. We know that much. He ceased the creative work which we know all the things he did, the stars, the skies, the animals, the man, all the things, the rivers and all that. We know that much, that when the Sabbath came, he didn't make any more rivers. He didn't make any more stars. He's done. So we know that much. But what he, how that Sabbath day, what else he did on the day, we just don't know. You know, did he kick his feet up and just kick back and relax? We don't know. Did he preach? What did he do? At this point, we just don't know. We just know he stopped the work of creation. The Hebrew word for work is malachot. And we can look back, and we did. We look back, so let's see what God's work was. What was his malachot? Well, his work was creating the universe. That was his work. And when he got to the end of that, he ceased creating the universe. We're going to find out later. It doesn't mean he doesn't, that, he's, that he doesn't do any more miracles or signs and wonders as he does. We're going to see that through Scripture. But as far as the initial act and work of creating the universe, he hasn't done that again. He completed it, and he set back. We also see there is no commandment that Adam or Eve were to observe the Shabbat. No commandment at all. We don't see them. And then God turned to Adam and Eve and said, you need to keep my Sabbath. Silent. Crickets. No comment at all. So people want to run off and say, well, you know, the commandment. Well, there's no commandment concerning Shabbat. All we know is that God blessed it and made it holy But we don't see him turning to any of the people that were there and say, keep it. All we see are commandments for Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, chapter, verse 16 to 17. God says, eat of any tree that's in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a commandment for them. 
We know in Genesis 1, 16 to 30, he says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, take dominion and rule over it. That was a commandment to them. In Genesis 2, 15, he takes them and put them in the garden. And he says to dress it, some translations say, or some say to till the ground, to be a husbandman. The word is avad, it means to service. It's the same place we get the word avadah, to bring our worship, our ministry. Before the Lord, our service to the Lord. God tells Adam and Eve, go to the garden and till the land, take care of it, serve it. He also says to keep it. It's the word shamar. It's the same word that's used in other places about keeping God's Torah, keeping his laws, or keeping the Sabbath. But he says that you are to dress and keep, which the word shamar means to God, to observe, to observe, to hedge about, to protect. When it says to keep something, it means you're to protect it. You're to put in measures to keep it safe, to keep it from being perverted. So he tells Adam and Eve, these are commandments, till the garden and protect it. But there's no command that says, oh, and by the way, when the seventh day rolls around, keep my Sabbath. It doesn't say that. So now we have to say, hmm, well, here's another interesting thing to think about. And there's a little bit of conjecture about this, of trying to figure out some things here. But let me just raise it to you. We know that stealing is wrong. We know that coveting is wrong. Lusting, pride, murder, adultery. We know those are all sins. They're repeated all throughout scriptures. We know that they are clearly spelled out in the Mosaic Law. You look at the Ten Commandments, and there they all are. However, we can see that even before the giving of that Mosaic Law, that these things were considered sin from the perspective of God, even though he hadn't commanded, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder. But yet we're going to see that when people sought to commit those things, that God didn't say, well, you didn't know. God says, no, 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 sin is at the door, you're transgressing. Let me just walk through a few of them. In 1 John, second chapter, verse 16, it speaks that the nature of the world, and when we say the world, not to, we don't mean the universe, we mean the world system. And we look at Scripture, and we, the Scripture says that Satan is the god of this world. Not the universe. God created that. But the system of this world. Mankind forfeited his right to be in dominion and authority and gave their, 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 their commitment, their, their um, what was the word you use? What would you say? Allegiance. That's the word I was looking for. Their allegiance to Satan and followed after him instead of following after God. And out of that, God, Satan was able to step in and become the god of the system of this world. That's why we shouldn't be surprised when we see the world going after the opposite of what God says to go after. That the world goes after all kind of things. And, and in John, they summarize it this way. John says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that that summarizes the world system. Three areas. Yet Adam and Eve broke all these before partaking of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had the lust of the flesh, they had the lust of their eyes, had a pride of life, and they broke all of those to enter sinning. In Genesis 2.9, it says that Eve saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. She took up the fruit and ate and then gave it to her husband, the scripture says, who was with her. 
There's a lot in that little verse, those little phrases. But the first thing is see that Eve was tempted through lust to break the commandment of God. It says, don't eat of this tree. You can eat of any other tree of God, but not the tree of the garden of, of knowledge of good and evil. And yes, the serpent tricks her, plays with things to get her attention, but it's inside of her that her own lust rises up, and instead of obeying God, she breaks his commandments, rebels against him, and eats of the tree she was not. And she failed in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Just the opposite of Yeshua, who was also tempted that way. The scripture says Yeshua was taken out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit of God led him in the wilderness. By the way, you know, there's nothing in scripture that says God won't lead you into the wilderness. In fact, the more you walk with the Lord, you can have times that you feel, I'm in a time of the wilderness. Things could begin to fall apart around you. Things could go wrong. You could be, lose your job. You could lose, deal with some health issues. Somebody in your family could lose something with their health or, or well-being. And when that happens, believe me, you're not smiling. You're in the wilderness. This is not a good time. It's like, I am in the wilderness. If, if your children walk away from the Lord, if somebody doesn't do what's holy and right, you're like, I'm in the wilderness right now. This is, things are going great, and this happened, I'm in the wilderness. So God will still lead you even to a place of the wilderness. Just because you're following after Yeshua doesn't mean that in your life everything's going to go perfectly well. They're going to be trying testing of your faith. God will allow your faith to be tested. And the only way, uh, where's my dear sister Linda? Linda always says, and she was teaching, well, you can't have a testimony without a, a test. When I first met Linda, that's what she always used to say. When people are going through something, she said, well, you can't have a testimony unless you go through a test. You got to have that testing. God will test you. God has tested many people. He tested Abraham. He put a test to his own son. Spirit led him out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And yet, he gets out there and he'd been fasting for 40 days. And if you've been fasting for 40 days, what would be the first thing on your mind? Food. That's a natural thing. There's nothing wrong with desiring food except if God told you to fast. So after he finished fasting, he was hungry. The scripture says, and Yeshua was hungry. He was hungry. He wanted some food. If I fasted for 40 days, I would be hungry too. But yet, the temptation comes in that the evil one comes to him, seeing that he's hungry, seeing that his flesh wants food. So he tries to come at him through a lust of the flesh and says, look, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Because he knew he was hungry. And so he's trying to get him to use the power of God, his power that he has, for his own selfish purpose. When God gives you power, it's for his kingdom for you to serve him. He doesn't give you power so you can build your name up. He gives you power so you can do the work of the kingdom to bring people to him. And so he's attempting, tempting the son of God to be selfish and use his power for himself with a question about if you're the son of God. Turn this bread. What does Yeshua say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And so he Gets tempted, but he doesn't give in to the temptation. He speaks the word of God. The word of God says you're to live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. You don't live your life seeking after bread. Bread, he, he knows you need bread. We know we need bread. That's why God provides bread for us. 
but we're to live after every word that comes forth. Satan doesn't give up. He's like, okay, so you, you, you can quote the word of God. So he takes Yeshua up on a high pinnacle and says, throw yourself off. For the word says the angels will hold you up so you will not dash against the stone. I know some of you have been flying around and everything <laughs> to just show Satan you don't know what you're talking about. But Yeshua doesn't do that. What does he do? What does he say? What? You shall not tempt the Lord. He realized that there was a temptation. You don't go jumping off for a cliff saying God's going to keep me up just because God is capable of doing that. If he didn't tell you to jump, you have no business jumping and saying, well, I'm a child of the king. He won't let any harm come to me. I can walk out into rush hour. Well, rush hour traffic, you could walk because it's not moving. But, but during regular times, I'm going to walk right out in front of the highway because God's going to let, he's just going to make the cars go around me or through me, but they're not going to touch me. And when I'm doing your funeral, I may speak about the foolishness, presumption that you make. That was a pride of life type of test. Oh, you know the word of God, then let's see what you can do with it. Satan doesn't give up even on that with Yeshua. It says he takes him up on a high mountain and he shows him the kingdoms of the earth. I don't think it was just the kingdoms there. I think he gave him a good presentation of the kingdoms. All the various kingdoms, animal kingdoms, earthly kingdoms, heavenly kingdoms, all the different kingdoms on the earth and said, look, all you have to do is bow down and worship me and all of this will be yours. And what did Yeshua say? You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. And he stood that test. And that would have been a lust of the eyes of seeing all these kingdoms and getting an easy way to get them. But in the garden, Adam and Eve did not passed the test. They walked in all of those and they sinned. And I said there was a little piece here you might miss. The scripture says after she did this, she took the fruit and gave it to her husband who was with her. He was right there doing the whole thing. So a lot of people think he was off tending the garden and she wandered off to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she got tricked by the serpent. No, he was there and he had a responsibility that he did not do, which he should have rebuked that serpent the moment he, that serpent started talking to his wife. He should have stood up and said, hey, no, you, you, no, uh-uh, stop talking to my wife. Who do you think you are? Get out of this garden right now. I've been given the authority to keep it, to till it, and take care of it. How dare you come up in the garden and start spreading your lies? You get out of here right now. But he shut his mouth. He abrogated his responsibility as the head of this household and let his wife sit there. And he just watched his wife get snookered, tricked by this serpent. Men, it is not your responsibility to let your wife cover you. Men, you are called. Yes, you're to love your wife. You're to lay your life down for her. She's made out of you, but you are called to responsibility to lead your family into righteousness. God expects you to do that. Well, she's smarter than me. So, I've had plenty of people in my life that's smarter than me. But if I'm the one in charge, if, if Ken's working for me and he's smarter than me about building something, I'm not going to say, well, you be in charge and I'll just get underneath you. No, I'm going to maintain my position in being in charge. But I'm going to be smart enough to say, hey, brother, I need you. I need your wisdom and your knowledge and your insight. You got to help me build this thing. But I'm making it clear he's coming to help me build this thing. He's coming alongside. He ain't in charge. 
Husbands, you're supposed to be in charge, not in a way of seeking to, to rule it over your spouse, but knowing that you have, a, you have to answer to God for your family. If your family's messed up, husbands, it is your responsibility to be on your knees praying. It's your responsibility to open your mouth and say, this is not right. Don't just sit there like Adam did. And the wife turns and he's just watching the whole thing go down. Hmm. Well, and he could even preserve himself. He could at least said, no, nah, honey, I ain't eating none of that. Uh-uh, no, I'm not eating any of that. You, you messed up. She's going to look and say, well, you were standing here the whole time. Why didn't you say something? I just want to see what you're going to do. I don't know what the excuse was, what he was trying to say. But he's watching the whole thing and he doesn't do anything. Scary. But, you know, I find that in times of having to counsel different people, men have that same thing still going on sometimes. Satan lures us into a sleepiness. We just figure our, our spouses can figure it all out. We let the enemy just come around in the midst of our house, in our houses. And so I say, no, 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 no. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to allow compromise here. We're going to take a stand for righteousness. All right. So we see that there's the lust of the flesh. All that's going on right in the garden. One of the commandments in the Ten Commandments is to honor your mother and father. Adam is called the son of God because he did not have a biological parents, but was directly made by God. God is his spiritual father. However, he and his wife did not honor God, but gave homage to the serpent. They broke the commandment, honoring their parents. Right there, broke the commandment. There it is. Broke the commandment of honoring your mother and father. Right there in the garden. Later on, as we see in life, as we move on, still no commandment. Cain and Abel was there. Still no commandment to keep the Sabbath. But we read this whole story about about Cain and Abel. We know that murder wasn't given as a commandment until God says, thou shalt not murder. You don't see it anywhere else where he commands it, but he commands it later. But when it's done by Cain, it's considered sin. Cain's jealousy rose to anger and led to murder. Yeshua says, but I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Note that God warned Cain that sin, an offense, chata'ah, offense, was at the door to desire him, but that Cain should rule over it. Abel, and then afterwards, Abel's blood cries out. If he kills his brother, his blood cries out from the ground and comes up to God. And even then, Abel tries to get out of thing. He doesn't walk in love. Scripture says you love your neighbor as yourself. And God comes on the scene and says, where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Why are you bothering me about my brother? Am I his keeper? We see all this sin, and yet no Torah commandment has been given concerning all these things. We know the commandment says thou shalt not commit adultery, right? But it's not spoken in the garden. It's not spoken to Cain or Abel. You don't even see it spoken to Noah. You don't even see it spoken straight out to Abraham. Yet it is Abraham who's afraid for his life. And he comes into an area, Genesis 20 chapter, and he comes in and he tells Sarah, tell everybody you're my sister. It was a half-truth because he was afraid that they would kill him because she was so pretty. And so Abimelech wanted to take Sarah as his wife. God stopped him so that he would not sin. I also withheld thee from sinning against me, he says. But where's the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery? Where was it given? Where is it given? But yet, when it's about to happen, God steps in and said, I'm keeping you from sinning. Just want to show you something here. Same thing with Joseph. There's no commandment, thou shalt, 
you know, that have been given, thou shalt not commit adultery. But even his, his, he's there, he's enticed to an adulterous affair with his master's wife, but he stated that he would not sin against God. This is what Joseph said. I will not sin against God. How did Joseph know that adultery was sin? Where's the commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery. A few more. In Genesis 35, 1 through 5, And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that, that appeared unto thee when thou fled from the face of thy brother Esau. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments, and let us rise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar unto the, to God who answers me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way that I went. And they gave Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hands. They had idols. But where is the commandment that says thou shalt not commit idolatry? Where is it? And yet, here's Jacob. Get rid of these idols. We get ready to go before God. This is wrong. This is wickedness. Idolatry is wrong. How do you know that? The commandments haven't been given. We're, we're still far away from Moses. And yet they have that sense. In Genesis 6, 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How, how can that be? How can we have good and evil? Well, one way we know we have good and evil because they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That which is good is that which is what God says you should do and what you should not do. That which is evil is that that's in rebellion of what God says. That's what evil has to do. That's what Ra is all about, doing the opposite of what God says. I'm doing my own thing. Then you're evil. Mankind tasted of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for the rest of the life, even to this present day, we have to discern between what is good and what is evil. God said you eat of this tree for the rest of your life, and we eat of that tree for the rest of our life. We have to discern between good and evil. We have to choose life over what is death. But you say, but how can God hold people accountable when the commandments weren't given? Turn over to Romans, the first chapter. It gives us some insight. And all this is leading to a point. We'll get there. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. How? For since the creation of the world, his in invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became vain or futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth to God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, 
also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burn in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. They did not like to retain God and their knowledge. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mind as they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, valent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing that the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Even before commandments are given from God's mouth, remember, man is made in the image of God. He has that in him. By being in the image of God, we have by made in us, manifest in us, right and wrong. Plus, we partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so we can have this knowledge inside of us, even if you have never been told the Ten Commandments. They hadn't been told the Ten Commandments before God destroyed the world with Noah and saved Noah and his family. They weren't given Ten Commandments, but it says they chose evil continually because built inside of mankind was the ability to walk with God and say, God, show me what's right. But they chose not to do that. They chose to go after their own passions and desires. Another verse related to this. Romans 2nd chapter, verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, those from the nations, non-Jews, who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves the thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Yeshua the Messiah according to my gospel. So even people without the law, they have no excuse. You could go to the Soviet Union, which practically overall is an atheistic country. They have no statements of believing in God. They don't believe there's no God. There, there are believers there. Some are just religious culturally. But overall, Russia as a country does not believe there's a God. There's no God. And yet, that country has rules and regulations against all type of things. Murder is wrong in Russia. Stealing is wrong in Russia. Homosexuality is wrong in Russia. Not in America. A country that proclaims God and says there is a God who says that homosexuality is wrong, but in America, our Supreme Court has decided, no, it's okay for two men to be husband and wife. But an uh, atheistic country says, no, that's wrong. Isn't that amazing? That's just so amazing. But it makes the point that even if you don't believe in God, God has built into people to know a certain sense of right and wrong, that they will make laws to say that things are right and wrong. And so in Russia, to steal is wrong. But why is it wrong? If you don't believe in God, by what standard that it is wrong for me to take Hilton's phone? 
who can judge me for that? If there's no God, if there's no standard of righteousness, he should have been bad enough, big enough, and tough enough to keep me from taking it. Here's your phone, brother, before you get angry. <laughs> and get bad enough to take it back. <laughs> so Paul said, hey, even if you don't have the law, you show by the way you live that the law is written in your heart. I find it interesting when you read reports of some of the gang activity that happens from one gang to another gang, and this one attacked this one, this one killed that. Why? You read it. Because they stole something from the first gang. Okay. Why is that wrong? They're showing in their hearts that even though they don't necessarily look to live for God, that if you take their drugs, that's wrong. You stole from me. God is showing that even without law, it's been built into mankind that show that the law is written in their hearts. In Romans 5, it says in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the same likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Yeshua the Messiah, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So God is turning around through his son to bring, to make people righteous. But notice what it says there, that even though the law had not been given, sin was in the world. Why? Because God is holy and righteous. Before he made anything, God had in his nature, thou shall not murder. Before God created anything, God had in his nature, thou shall not steal. Before God created anything, God had in his nature, thou shall not commit adultery. Before God created anything, God had in his nature, thou shall not commit idolatry. It is part of his nature. You don't murder, you don't steal, you don't do any of these things. And we see that even though the commandments are not given to Moses, God held people responsible for it or protected them from committing certain sins. Now, based on all that, this is a question. I can't be dogmatic about it, but I've walked through and show, I can show you as we looked at, we look at the Ten Commandments given to Israel as covenant. There's one commandment I haven't talked about, and that is keep the Sabbath. But it's part of the other ones, just right there with murder, right, just right there with no coveting, with all of that. So is it reasonable that even though he says thou shalt not murder, but he held people responsible for murdering? Even though he says thou shalt not steal, he hadn't given a commandment of that, but he held people responsible when they were stealing. Is it possible, is it reasonable, I appeal to you, to propose that the precept, keep the Sabbath holy, was also in place before the law was explicitly given? Just something to think about. Why would you exercise that from all the rest? Now, and let me put it in another way. Remember I said, when you, the way you get to know people, you hang out with them, see what they like to do. You came over to the house and hang out with me, you learn some things that maybe you don't know about me. I like science fiction. I like to watch science fiction movies, whether it's Star Wars, Star Trek, 
whatever. You know, all this. I love science fiction. I just like watching it. I know it's fiction, but I just enjoy it. Maybe it's the technological side of me as an engineer. I just like those kind of things. If you hung out with me, you would have to watch a little Star Wars if you want to hang out with me because you find, oh, wow, Pastor Ralph is watching Star Wars. The one that comes out, I'm hoping to see it when it comes out. You may learn some foods I like and things. You may learn some of my habits that I wake up in the morning. You see me reach in and grab two pieces of fruit and eat them every morning. So I eat every morning. I eat two pieces of fruit and eat them. You'll learn these things about me by hanging out with me. So let's dream a little bit. What do you think it was like hanging out with God? It's the first day of the week. You're hanging out with God. He's being holy and righteous and all that. Walking with him in the garden. You do the second day, you do the third day, you do the fourth day, you do the fifth day, you do the sixth day. God is the one who took the seventh day and made it holy and lifted it up to be blessed. Do you think on the seventh day he just went on like it was nothing? I think since it's his Sabbath that you would suddenly realize, oh God, what's this thing we're doing? Well, it's the Sabbath day. We're just, you, can, you can take a break from tilling the garden. Let's just go over here and chill a little bit. You don't have to go out and work the land today. Because it's a Sabbath, and I, I want my Sabbath day to be holy. I want it to be lifted up. Just a thought. I can't dogmatically, and I would not dogmatically say to anyone, based on what we've read so far, you've got to keep the Sabbath. In fact, that's not the way I operate anyway. I like to appeal through a relationship that as you walk with God, you learn his nature and his character, that you learn to be like him, to like the things that he likes. And so that's what we have. So let's move on. How much time do we have? Thomas. How much? Four minutes. Whoa, I got to move quickly. Oh, 14. I can move a little slower. (laughs) All right, moving on. There are approximately 2,500 years between Adam and Moses. Let me say that again. 2,500 years between Adam and Moses. And there is no mention of the Sabbath between those times. Silence. I call it the silent years. There is silence on the Sabbath all the way until the children of Israel are brought out of Egypt. There is no command for anyone, including Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, to keep a weekly day of resting. It's not mentioned at all. Never to Abraham. And Abraham was called righteous, but there's no mention about the Sabbath. No mention to Isaac. No mention to Jacob. It's silence. There's no mention to Joseph. And he got dreams and visions. And he could hear from God. And yet there's no mention of the Sabbath for all that. 2,500 years. Now there's some hints. Can't be dogmatic, but there are hints. First, there's the idea of, in Hebrew we call it Shabbat Yamin, seven days. And so we see this concept of seven days. In Genesis 7, 4, for yet seven days I will cause it to rain upon the earth. Genesis 7, 10, and it came to pass after seven days. And then Noah sent out the dove. Every seven days, Genesis 8.10, Genesis 8.12. My only question I could ask there, why seven? Why not 10, 15, 2? But it's every seven days. Genesis 50.10, Joseph mourns for seven days. Even with the plagues, on the first plague of the blood of waters, it was seven days long. Even the giving of unleavened bread, which predates the giving of the Torah, seven days unleavened bread. Then there's the concept of Shavua. Shavua is what we say, Shavua Tov, have a good week. It's just thrown in Scripture. Genesis 29, 27 says that she will fulfill her week and we will give the 
also the service which shall serve with me in the end seven years. This has to deal with being promised Leah and Rachel and getting Leah. And this is, this, this is the whole thing. And he has to wait seven days, a Shavua, a, a week. Where did they get this week thing from? Where did they get the concept of a week, seven days? Well, I, I can't say exactly except that I know that God created the heavens and earth in six days and the seventh day he rested and he starts over. And so we get this idea of a week. That's what a week is, seven days. And yet we see that people have this concept of the week. It's already in their head that there's a week time frame. Now, I would have to believe Adam and Eve told something to their children about what happened in the garden. I mean, you know, as parents, sometimes we don't like to tell all our dirt, right? Come on, parents. We don't like to tell all our dirt to our kids. But I have to believe they talked about, hey, here's what happened. God created the heavens and the earth six days. Seven days he rested. Really? Yeah, he set that day aside. He made it holy. He lifted it up. Wow. Seven days. Shavua. A week. I believe the concept of week was already in minds of people because they knew the creation story. And so they were already aware of it. But I wouldn't use that to prove that God had commanded Sabbath for the whole earth. Again, we're just letting scriptures reveal. Thomas just had 10 minutes. So let's see if we can get a little bit of this part and then we close. So 2,500 years goes tracking along. No mentioning of the Shabbat. No comment at all. Children of Israel brought out of bondage, out of Egypt. They come out of the, through the Red Sea, of Red, Red sea, the Sea of Reeds. They come out on the other side. The God's leading them by the fire, by the pillar, they, this, that, and the other. They're complaining about everything. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, they're complaining, they're upset, and, and we want meat, we want this, it's awful, we want water, we're thirsty, and they're complaining, 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 even after all the miracles. And they, they get to, we get to the 16th chapter, and they're tracking along, and they're complaining. We want meat! We want meat! Because they couldn't kill any of the animals. They had a lot of animals. You ever, did you know that, that they had animals with them? But the animals were dedicated for, for worship, so they didn't eat them. <laughs> They had animals they could have slaughtered and eaten. But they wanted meat that they could use for eating. And they wanted bread. And so we get to the 16th chapter. And it says, They journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel, this is Exodus 16, came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of Yah in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You were slaves in Egypt. They want to go back. Then the, then the Lord, Yah, said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from the heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my Torah or not. Interesting. Torah hasn't been given yet as far as the official giving of the commandments, but God's saying, will they follow my Torah or not? Will they follow my teaching or not? I'm going to test them. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gathered daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that Yah has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against him, against, the, against Yah. 
But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses says, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us but against Yah. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before Yah, for he has heard your complaints. Then came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, at twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am Yah, your God. And so it was that the quails came up at evening and covered the camp. And in the morning the dew laid all around the camp. And when the layer of camp lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? That's what manna is. It means, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which Yah has given you to eat. This is the thing which Yah has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they had measured it by omers... He who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses says, let no one leave it, any of it, till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. But some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man, according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the elders, the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses, he said, hey, we got two. And he said to them, this is what the Yah has said, tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord, literally a Shabbaton, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses says, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath, this is the next morning, to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be be not. Here's what I want you to see. He didn't create the Sabbath at that time. He revealed it to Israel. They had become slaves. They had fallen away from it. They didn't know about it. And so they're just tracking along. It's the first day. It's the second day. It's that somebody's being, letting the worms, it's turning to worms. Man, we got to get this stuff or it's going to turn to worms. Third day, fourth day, and the sixth day, hey, there's a double portion here today. And then the seventh day came. And he told no one to go out, but one person went out looking for it on the seventh day, and there was none to be found. But the thing I want you to see is that it comes along, and basically Moses says, it's God's Sabbath. God's been keeping his Sabbath for 2,500 years. He's been doing it for 2,500 years. He's been keeping the Sabbath. And now he turns, hey, Moses, it's God's Sabbath. 
And he's going to do this in a dramatic way for you to understand. That he's going to provide for you. Creative miracle. Hmm, that's what he did at the beginning. Creative miracle. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, double portion. Seventh day, I'm not doing any creative miracle for you. It's the Sabbath. It's my Sabbath. A lot of times people say it's the Jews' Sabbath. No, Yah says it's his. It's his Sabbath. He gives it to Israel, and they're to keep it, but it's not their Sabbath. It's God's Sabbath. Later on, people refer to it in, in, in writing, oh, it's the Jews' Sabbath, because these were Gentiles on the outside. It's their Sabbath because they weren't keeping it. You follow? And my time's up, right? I didn't see the one minute, two minute, one minute. It's one minute, 16 seconds. So I want you to see this. God didn't create the Sabbath at that moment. It was already in place for 2,500 years. And now he reveals it to the children of Israel that he brought out of bondage, out of Egypt. And he lets them know, oh, by the way, it's God's Sabbath. And I'm going to do this in a dramatic way. And I'm going to do creative miracles like I did at the beginning on the other six days of the week. But on the seventh day, I cease. I'm not doing miracles there for your bread. So you will get it in your thick heads that six days I created the heavens and the earth and the seventh day I rested. I want you to know this and I want you to keep this and I want you to be a part of it because I've been keeping it for 2,500 years. And we're going to close with that. There's more to say, but the time has run by. So you see it being revealed. You see it unfolding before us. And we're going to see it unfold even in a more distinctive way. But there's a lot to learn. Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. Abba, we are so grateful for your word. And Lord, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to bring forth to this community uh, a teaching from your word. Lord, I acknowledge my need for your abundant grace. Because the material we're looking at today, Lord, is so rich and so powerful and so life-changing. And honestly, Lord, I, I feel humanly inadequate. But I look to you for your grace and anointing and ask that you would speak today in a way that every single one of us would be impacted by your spirit. In Yeshua's name, amen. We are continuing today with our Roman series, from which we've taken a break, actually, probably for about six weeks or so. Uh, but today we're going to pick up in chapter 6, which begins a series of chapters that are probably the strongest writing in the New Covenant Scriptures for making the point that our salvation in Yeshua is not just about going to heaven when we die. I get a little bothered when I hear people share the gospel and say, if you'll just believe this, you get to go to heaven when you die. That is so, that is such, does such a disservice to the good news. Do we get to go to heaven or spend eternity with God? Yes, we will. But that's not what it's all about. That's not the whole thing by any means. Uh, it's not just about going to heaven. But these next three chapters communicate very deeply and very powerfully that salvation in Yeshua is meant to utterly transform the way we live here and now. Salvation in Yeshua is meant to liberate us to experience eternal life here and now. And so to lead into our considerations for today, I'd like to read a quote 
uh, from an author by the name of Wayne Jacobson. He writes the following. He says, we make a fatal mistake when we try to force scripture to offer redemption to those who only want to go to heaven, but do not want a relationship with the living God. By trying to offer them some minimal standard of conduct that will also allow them to qualify for salvation while continuing to pursue their own agenda, we distort the gospel and destroy its power. In fact, the New Testament has nothing to say to people who want God's salvation without wanting God himself. Well, this is a fitting introduction to Romans 6 because in chapter 5, which we examined a number of weeks ago, Shaul elaborated on the incredible, dynamic, and life-changing power of the grace of God. But as he concluded those thoughts on grace in chapter 5, he he evidently realized that the concept and the meaning of grace might easily be misunderstood. And so he sets out to give some clarification as well as further teaching on the meaning and impact of grace in each of our lives. So let's pick up at the beginning of chapter 6. What the, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were immersed or baptized into Messiah Yeshua were immersed into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through immersion into death, that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul had ended the previous chapter with the statement, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So let's remember a key issue from chapter 5. Sin abounded in our lives as we were what, what Paul called in Adam. Remember we talked about this. The sin of Adam defined who we were. It defined our nature. It defined our sense of identity. And it resulted in our own bondage to sin. We, we were born into this world as those connected to Adam. Sin abounded in our lives. It ruled us totally because it was our nature. But then, and this is what, what, what Shaul got into in depth in chapter 5, and he actually repeated the statement about a half a dozen times in different ways. He talked about where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. How did grace abound much more? Grace abounded much more as God brought us into union with Yeshua's life, and gave us a righteous new nature to replace our old sin nature. This is in fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, uh, among other passages also, but Ezekiel 36 especially talks about uh, a, a prophecy where in connection with the new covenant, God said, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and the ideas by which you can serve me and live for me. So... Paul's point here is this. If someone asks the question, all right, 
since now, you know, going back to the previous chapter, if grace abounds when sin abounds, in other words, sin, when, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. If someone were to ask the question, should we continue in sin so that grace can abound, they're misunderstanding what it is that grace has accomplished. God's grace is not just for allowing us to feel forgiven after we've sinned. Well, uh, uh, the more I sin, the more I, uh, opportunity I'll have to partake of God's grace and forgiven. No, that completely misses the point of God's grace. That's his point here. It's much more about, fe- it's much more than allowing us to feel forgiven after we've sinned. But God's grace makes it possible for us to keep from sinning because our nature is now changed. That is the height of God's grace to us. That's why Shaul answers the question in the way that he does. God forbid is the idea there in verse 2. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? So the idea is God forbid that we would live that way. In fact, the idea of continuing to walk in sin goes against the meaning of who we now are in Yeshua. He refers to us here as having died to sin. The language used here is meant to emphasize something very, very strongly. And that is, there has been a separation of the believer and our old sin nature. We have died to the sin nature. A real separation has taken place. That sin nature, that's not us anymore. It's no longer who we are. It used to be when we were in Adam. That was our nature. That was our identity. That was who we are. But Shaul is saying, that's not who you are anymore. You have, there has been a real death, a real separation that has taken place between the believer and his old sin nature. Well, hearing this leaves us with another question then. We might ask, how is it that we still commit acts of sin? If we have died to the old sin nature, well, our spirit has been made new, but our bodies have not been yet, yet not yet been resurrected and glorified. And so st- sin is something that seeks to continue to gain a place in our lives through our flesh. By our flesh, I mean our physical bodies, our minds, our will, and our emotions. These collectively make up our flesh, as Paul refers to it a number of times in the book of Romans. So, sin is still at work in this fallen world. Sin appeals to our flesh, that is, our bodies, our thought life, our emotions. Sin tempts our flesh, seeking to stir up the natural desires of our flesh. When temptation appeals to our flesh and we give our attention to the desires in us that get stirred up by that temptation, the more attention we give to the desires of our flesh, the more likely we are to end up giving place to sin. It's not that our old sin nature is still alive. And this is a very important distinction, as we'll we'll get to a, a little bit later and in the next time when we get into Romans 7. It's not, it's not that our old sin nature is still alive, but rather that our flesh, our natural man, is still subject to the lure and to the pull of sin. And so here we are, living in this fallen world. We can still be drawn in by the power of sin. But Paul is making the point here that, listen, you need to realize 
what it is that really took place when you were born again. His point is, our, our relationship to the sin nature is now changed. Our actual condition has been changed. And the result of that is, we don't have to sin anymore. We now have, by God's grace, a power within us to resist sin by the Holy Spirit, a power we did not have before we received Yeshua and his salvation. Now, verse 3, Shaul begins to explain this. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized or immersed into Messiah Yeshua were immersed into his death? Paul is not speaking here of water immersion. That's, that's my understanding. I mean, there are people might disagree on that. It's not a huge point. Water immersion or baptism in water is a, is an outward picture of what Paul is talking about here in these verses of Romans 6. He is speaking of a spiritual truth that we are to understand based on this word immersed or baptized. There, baptized really doesn't have a meaning. I mean, the word in the Greek is baptizo, and, and baptized is just an English transliteration. But it, the idea is to immerse. The meaning from the Greek is to introduce or place something into a new environment, <laughs> to place something into union with something else so that its actual condition is changed as it takes on the characteristics of this new environment that it's brought, that it's been brought into. That's the meaning of that word. That's translated baptize or immerse. So this speaks of God in the spirit bringing us into a union with Yeshua, resulting in a change in our spiritual condition, a change in our nature. And so, as we have now been immersed into this life of Yeshua, the power of the sin nature is broken, and the divine life of Messiah is actually imparted now to the believer. Remember, based on the meaning of the word, we begin to take on the nature of this new environment we've been transplanted into. That's why we see Paul throughout his writings, throughout his letters, and others using this this simple phrase, in Messiah. We are to see ourselves as in Messiah. We are taking on, that's the environment we're in, and we are taking on the very nature of the one who, in, in whose life we've been transplanted planted into. So this is something that takes place through our trusting, our faith identification with Yeshua. And of course, immersion in water gives us an outward picture of this spiritual reality that, that, that Shaul is presenting here. So, Spiritually speaking, we've been placed into the new environment of Yeshua's life, and we actually take on the nature of Yeshua's life. That's God's idea in salvation. His life is that new environment we've been transplanted into. And so Paul is saying here that the reason you're no longer enslaved to sin is because your life has been transplanted into this totally new environment in which the power of sin has been completely broken. Now, remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the issue of, or the principle, it's called representative headship. Here is where our understanding, and we're going to, I'm going to touch on it. I'm not going to explain it fully because we, we touched on it for a couple of weeks. But here's where our understanding of that issue becomes very helpful. Remember, the sin nature speaks of who you were in Adam when he was your representative, your representative head. We were all born into that place where Adam was our representative head. 
but you have been brought under a new headship. That means that you take on the nature of the one whose headship you have come under. So, with Yeshua as your representative head, you need to see that whatever describes Yeshua now also describes you. And so, when he died on that tree, we died in him. It's the same concept. Remember, we talked about when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, according to the Word of God, and Paul actually says this, we sinned in Adam. We weren't there. We weren't alive yet. But when Adam sinned, according to the Word of God, it's as if we sinned in him. That's that representative headship issue. Well, it's the same principle here. When Yeshua died on that tree, we died in him. You follow? You follow what I'm saying? Okay, so the old man who was infected with sin through our connection to Adam, the idea here is that we have been separated from that old sin nature and we have been planted into a totally new environment. Let's read on, verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through immersion into death, that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. All right, if the, if the, if the sin, the sin nature has been put to death through our faith identification with Yeshua, that old nature was buried and then it was left in the grave. And then what comes forth in us is something totally new in nature, something totally new in quality, new because we are now empowered by the resurrection life of the Messiah. There is now a newness of life that we are to walk in. That's that's the wording that Paul uses here. So we also should walk in newness of life. This isn't just theory. It's not just a concept. It's something that's to be played out day by day in our lives. We, as those joined to Messiah, now uh, uh, have working in us a whole new quality of life. Now, here's, here's something that's very important. Paul is relating all this as objective fact. In other words, it has nothing to do with whether or not we feel like the old nature is crucified and raised up with the Messiah. How many of you know that there are lots of times we don't feel very crucified and we certainly don't feel very resurrected? And this is really, it ties in with what, what Rob was sharing earlier. This issue is objective fact that Paul is, 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 is establishing here. It has nothing to do with how we feel. It has nothing to do with our performance. The fact is, for all who have put their trust in Yeshua, there has been a joining in the spirit to his death, Yeshua's death, as well as Yeshua's resurrection. Now, because we have died with Yeshua, the sin nature is no longer controlling our lives, meaning we don't have to sin anymore. We might choose to sin sometimes, and we do choose to sin sometimes. Hopefully, it's becoming less and less and less. But we do not have to sin anymore. And because we're also raised with the Messiah, his divine nature is imparted to us so that we should no longer even want to sin. See, our nature's been changed, folks. 
when, 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 when people, when people who profess to be believers talk about, well, this is the way I have to be. I'd really rather be doing this sin stuff, but this is the way I have to be. That tells me, I, I, I really wonder, has the person's heart been changed? Because we're not supposed to want to sin anymore. And the, and, and what we're going to look at today really is a key to not, to, to, to establishing that not wanting to sin anymore in our lives as well as being able to not sin anymore in our lives. Yes, our flesh still has cravings and desires that we may sometimes give in to, but those desires do not represent our basic new nature. So let me just to give you an example. Let's say somebody offends us or hurts us or does something really just terrible to us. And there's something rises up in us where we, we become offended, we become bitter, and we struggle with this, the, maybe the issue of unforgiveness. I'm sure we all can relate to the situation. We've all experienced it at times. Unforgiveness does not come from your new nature. Unforgiveness is coming from your flesh. It's coming from your mind and emotions that are reasoning out why you have a right to be offended rather than coming from your spirit. It's not, it does not represent who you really are now. Those, de- those desires don't represent who we now are in Yeshua. Those desires are just based on old habits that our flesh has gotten accustomed to over the years and the fact that our flesh is not yet fully redeemed. That's why we still experience temptation and even sin. All right, let's keep reading now. Ch- uh, verse 5. All right, he's, he said that, uh, well, let's read 4 and 5 together. We were buried with him through immersion into death, that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For, or because, if we have been united together in the likeness of Yeshua's death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He's just continuing with the same concept. Our identification with Yeshua is complete. It's total. And so we're joined to his resurrection life just as surely as we have been joined to his death. Let's read on, verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Again, the old man here refers to who we were in Adam before we received Yeshua. That old nature has been crucified. So, with the old nature crucified, we're no longer in bondage to the ongoing process of obedience to sin. That process has been rendered inoperative. Now, Shaul says we will certainly walk in this newness of resurrection life, but there's there's two key words in verse 6. Knowing this. Knowing this. In other words, knowing once and for all that the old man is dead. So, so then knowing this truth is key to experiencing the power of resurrection life. There's great emphasis on those two words, knowing this. See, we've got to come to the place of seeing these things that Paul describes here as, as I said earlier, objective truth. We've got to know it. It's not true or false based on how we feel 
on a particular day. It's not true or false based on how well we've resisted sin on a particular day. It's not true or false based on how spiritual we feel on a particular day. Rather, regardless of our feelings and regardless of how often we have failed and fallen short, this is objective truth about us if we are in the Messiah. We must know this as truth. Now, certainly knowledge by itself does not give us victory. There are plenty of people who have a lot of head knowledge and they're walking in defeat. Knowledge itself, by itself, doesn't give us victory. But his point here is that knowing this truth of having been joined to Yeshua is necessary if we are going to walk this out victoriously. So, we've got to get our eyes off of ourselves off of me. It's one of the biggest challenges every one of us has. I don't care how long you've been a believer. It's one, it's the biggest challenge we probably have throughout our life, getting my eyes off of me. We've got to get our eyes off ourselves and get fixed on the truth of this glorious work that God has done, the truth that his word speaks of concerning us and that we need to think of in terms of concerning me. God has written this about me. It's not just some general knowledge out there somewhere. This is about me. We may think, yeah, well, I still, I still see sin and failure, so much, and, and so much of my flesh seems to be at work. God responds, that's not how I see you any longer, because you've come into union with Yeshua. I'm seeing you based on that union, that connection now with the life of Yeshua. So we've got to know this, this objective truth of our union with the life of the Messiah. That truth must become more real to us, I would say, than even our emotions and our experiences. It's got to become so real to us. Sometimes people think that theology is really not a very important thing. Folks, what we're seeing here is the theology of our new life in Messiah. I'd say it's a very important thing. And according to Shaul, it's crucial that we know this if we're going to walk it out victoriously. Knowing this that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of, of sin might be done away with or rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Knowing this truth, it's crucial. All right, let's read on. Verse 8. Now, if we died with the Messiah... We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Messiah, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Paul continues here with the same basic point, And the key is we believe that our, our lives are now in Yeshua. This is a faith issue. Now. As Shaul is pushing this issue of our connection to Yeshua being understood as objective truth, regardless of how we feel, it's as if he's asking us to put aside for a moment our experience, put aside for a moment the fact that, yes, we still encounter temptations and struggles, and can just consider the fact of what is true concerning Yeshua himself, because what he's saying to us is, what is true of Yeshua is also true concerning us, since we are now joined to him. 
And he's saying all this for one basic purpose. And that is so that we can understand why it's now possible for us to live in victory over sin. Because Yeshua was crucified, we're crucified with him. As he was raised from the dead, we are raised up with him as new creations who have left that old sin nature in the grave. And now, because he is perfectly righteous, we become righteous in him. Yeshua's headship over our lives establishes as fact things that we tend to relate more to our works and our performance and how we feel about ourselves. And Paul is saying, stop looking at it that way. See, it's as we understand that we're now in him, then whatever he is becomes the basis for our identity as well. Remember, Shaul said in verse 6, knowing this, understanding this is key to your victory. You will live in the reality of resurrection life and victory over sin only as you know this truth. So our connection to Yeshua and his life, his righteousness, this is a fact. It's not something that changes based on our ability to do things right. It's, it's, it's a fact that we must know and embrace. Well, today I don't feel very connected to Yeshua. You still are. And we've got to get this down. All right, verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. So likewise, or just as what I've explained about Yeshua is true, he's saying, the same is true for you. Consider yourself to be dead to to the sin nature and alive to God in Messiah. So, again, the objective facts issue. Looking at the facts about Yeshua... This is what you must conclude about yourself, that you are dead to the sin nature, you are now alive to God, you are alive to his dynamic work of righteousness in you. Now, the grammar of the Greek here suggests that Paul is speaking of continuous action. In other words, constantly be keeping before your eyes this truth about yourself. It's not just something you do once. You've got to constantly do it over and over again. I don't know about you. My memory is short. I have to do it every day. I have to do it a few times a day sometimes. But that objective truth is is that just as Yeshua is, you also are truly dead to the sin nature and truly alive to God's resurrection, life, and power. And you have got to focus on this truth continually. Why? Because unlike Yeshua, we do still dwell in this fallen world and in these mortal bodies that are subject to sin. Because you battle with temptation and sin in this fallen world, keep before your eyes this truth about yourself that you are dead to the sin nature. You do not have to yield to it anymore because you are now alive to God. You're alive to the work of his spirit. So we've got to turn our attention to these truths and know what it is that's taken place in our lives because so much of what we deal with in this life would seem to indicate that, st- that sin still does have a hold on us after all. And so we can get weighed down with condemnation, a sense of failure, sense of letting God down because we fall short. It leaves us feeling guilty, feeling unworthy of resurrection life based on our shortcomings. 
We think, well, what the Bible says, I know it's true, but I just don't think it's very true about me. And a lot of believers think this way. Well, this is why we've got to be renewing our minds as we get our eyes off of ourselves, as we get our eyes off of our own works and focus instead on the truth of who we are in Yeshua. If we see ourselves as guilty and unworthy all the time because of our works rather than righteous because of our union with Yeshua, we will end up excluding ourselves from his resurrection life. And we'll figure, you know what, there's no way I could be worthy of this. And we, we, we give up even trying to resist sin. If we just have this, this view of ourselves, I'm unworthy, you know, I'm just, ah, we, we won't even try to resist sin. Beloved, we must meditate on these truths of our union with Yeshua. It's the only way we can grow in faith for living in the victory that Yeshua has won for us. We remind ourselves there is a new power to which we are now alive in spite of the temptation and even sometimes failure that we can still experience. That's why he makes a point to say, you're alive to God. You're alive to that, that active, dynamic work of righteousness that he wants to impart to you and impact your life with. You're alive to it. Don't forget that. Regardless of how we've fallen short, the power of resurrection life is at work in us. We are alive to that resurrection life. Now, as we consider and meditate on these truths, we gain a new hope that a walk of victory over sin really is possible. Why? Because as our minds are being renewed, we come to realize that the victory does not depend on our human ability to somehow work hard enough to overcome sin. And instead, we come to see that, wait a minute, it is, it's my union with him. See, this takes a renewing of the mind because we want to try to do everything for ourselves. We're, we're geared towards self-sufficiency. But it's our union with Yeshua, his resurrection life. That's what lifts us out from slavery to sin's power, enabling us to leave the old ways behind. See, we're reminding ourselves there's a new power alive in us in spite of the temptations that we do still experience. So here's what we need to see. In the midst of temptation, if our focus is on me trying hard to not sin, then we're going to often fail. But if our focus is on the power of God's grace at work in me, and that in Yeshua, I'm now a new creation, and what I'm being tempted by, you know what? That's not me anymore. That unforgiveness that wants to come out and express itself, that bitterness, that's not who I am. I mean, that's obviously just one example. But we get this in our hearts. That's not me anymore. That's not who I am. So we see ourselves as being dead to sin's rule and alive to resurrection life and power. Now, that does not mean we just ignore sin. We'll get to that, it, it, not so much today, but probably next week we'll touch on it more. But it's not to say we should be in denial about sin. It's just to say we've got to understand who we are. Now, let's pick up, let's continue. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should Obey it in its lusts. Okay, because of what we now see about ourselves, therefore, don't allow sin to rule in your mortal body. Don't obey your flesh in its lusts and desires. See, our flesh is the point of attack where sin appeals 
when it's trying to prevail over us. Paul is saying we're not to allow sin to rule in us. The choice is ours. It's nobody else's choice, folks. The devil cannot make you do anything. The choice is ours. Now, I'm not saying there, there, there are times when our continued repeated sin in certain areas opens the door to the enemy and we may come into demonic bondage that needs to be broken. But I'm saying our basic position in Messiah is the choice is ours. Sin will tempt you, but consider who you now are in the Messiah. Hold this truth before yourself continually. Seeing that you are no longer a slave to the power of sin. Stop allowing it to rule over you. That's what he's telling us. You're not just helpless slaves anymore to that sin that's trying to slap you around and push you around. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. So he said in 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but... Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, the word members, which this translation uses, uh, it, it speaks basically of our natural faculties, our body, our mind, our emotions, our will. He's saying, don't give your natural faculties over to sin. When you do, you're giving your natural faculties to be used as, as it says instruments here, but the idea is weapons. You're, you're giving yourself over to be, your, the, the parts of your, your natural faculties are being used as weapons of unrighteousness. That's the idea. When we sin, we're not actually, I mean, we are actually giving our natural faculties to be used by the enemy as weapons against the purposes of God's righteousness. And Paul's here is saying very simply, stop doing it. You're not a slave anymore. So stop doing it. Stop doing anything that contributes to the success of the evil that we've actually been delivered from. Instead, let your natural faculties be used as weapons of righteousness for serving the purposes of God and his kingdom of righteousness and truth. Seeing the truth of what God has done in our lives, we respond by presenting ourselves to him for serving his righteous ways and purposes. It's speaking of our will here, our will presented over to God. We present ourselves to him, and as we do so, we're giving God something to work with. And that's where he meets us with the power of his grace. Even though I still find myself falling short sometimes, God's word says that in Yeshua, I am alive to God. That's why I can present myself to him today and every day, regardless of my feelings. Well, I don't feel very righteous today. It doesn't matter how you feel. This is objective fact is what he's saying. Why am I repeating this over and over again? Because we need it. We need we, we too easily forget it. Because when you wake up tomorrow and you start getting these thoughts of, you know, you rotten thing, you've got to, you've got to remember this is objective fact. Who you are in Yeshua is truth. And so I can live every day presenting myself to God as someone who's alive from the dead. I don't feel very alive from the dead. It's still true. I present myself to God as being alive from the dead. See, this is a faith issue. If we're just waiting to feel up to it, folks, God's not going to have anybody to work with. 
I present myself to God as someone alive from the dead. Someone whose life is given over to serving the purposes of God, the purposes of his kingdom. All right, now let's, let's continue on. And we're going to read 12 and 13 again to lead into 14, which will be the last verse we'll look at today. But we'll take a little bit with that. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God for or because sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law, but under grace. I believe the way we properly understand Shaul's intent and meaning here is to see this as a concluding statement in a sequence of cause and effect statements. That's very important because, and I'll get to that in a minute, but let me just very quickly address something that I don't think we need to address here, but just to say it so to, to make it very, very clear for any who may have questioned. If you look at the context here, there is no way that, that, that Paul is talking about the Torah in its fullness, the Torah in the sense of Jewish life. There is no way that Paul is even talking about uh, uh, the moral aspects of God's Torah, God's law, when he's talking about not being under law but under grace. And so often you'll hear people say, well, why are you doing this Shabbat thing? Or why are you doing these holidays? Because don't you know you're not under the law anymore? Can you see that when that kind of thing is said that it's being totally pulled out of context here? Because that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about about those issues here. But let's look at this sequence of cause and event statements. See, the whole meaning of the passage rests on understanding the last statement. You are not under law. And some translations say the law. The is not there in the Greek. So, so just take it out. You are not under law. And I believe legalism would be a better word to have in there. You are not under law, but under grace. So Paul has made these statements. Reckon yourself, consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. Therefore, in other words, cause and effect. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey in its lusts and so on. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God for cause and effect. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Paul is, is presenting the possibility of living in this victorious process of presenting ourselves to God. And he says, sin does not have dominion over you. That's why you can present yourself to God. But why can we say that sin will not have dominion over us? Because you are not under law, but under grace. See, everything that Shaul has said about the victorious life rests on that statement, you're not under law, but under grace. So what does that mean? We've heard enough of the misinterpretations of it and bad theology that's come out of people lifting it out of context. What does it mean? Well, when he says that we're not under law but under grace, he's stating the basic reason for why we don't have to give ourselves to sin anymore. When he speaks of the law here, again, 
I believe he's referring to, as we've talked about in past weeks, what we call the ministry of the law. And certainly not God's laws or God's standards of righteousness. He's not talking about the Torah as a whole. But when he says we're no longer under law, he simply means law no longer stands over us as our judge, leaving us guilty. Is the law still in effect? Of course it is. Remember what we talked about, the specific aspect of the ministry of the law that leaves man guilty and condemned. That's what we are no longer under. We're no longer judged by the law and our inability to perfectly keep its standards. God's salvation removes us from the ministry of the law so that we no longer have to see ourselves as unworthy transgressors who have failed God. We see ourselves instead through grace. Now, again, that doesn't mean we don't acknowledge sin when we fall. God gives provision for that in the word, clearly. When, when we fall, you know, when, uh, if, if you sin, confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. It's not to say live in denial or, you know, get into some ridiculous, silly game. Well, that's not really me. When we just sinned, I didn't sin. That was somebody else. No, it was you. And you got to acknowledge it. You have to repent. <laughs> But he's saying here that we've got to see our lives through that grace. By God's grace, we've been made righteous in Messiah so that we no longer have that inescapable inward sense of being guilty transgressors. Remember, there's a difference between our falling in sin and repenting and dealing with it versus our having an identity based on sin. Do you follow? Do you see the difference? This is why it's so important that we, you know, sometimes people teach and I just, you know, I'm not dogmatic about it, but I really don't agree with it. When people says, well, I have my two natures. There's my old nature and there's my new nature. Well, what's your identity? If that's how you think, what's your identity? When I'm sinning, I guess that's my identity. No, God wants us in a place where our identity is Yeshua all the time. Sometimes we get into the flesh. It's not that there's an old and new nature. We have one new recreated, reborn nature. We also have our flesh. That's what we see as the distinction. So when he speaks of law here, He's referring to the ministry of the law. We are under grace. By God's grace, we have been made righteous in the Messiah so that we no longer have that that sense of being unworthy all the time, always feeling unworthy. There are many, 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 too many believers who after they've confessed and repented of sin still feel unworthy. And when that's the case, we are under the ministry of the law. We're under condemnation. So... Now we're under grace. In other words, through the blood of Yeshua, grace has been extended to us to cleanse us of our sin and to change our nature. As a result, we no longer have to see ourselves according to our failures and unworthiness. Our whole image of who and what we are is changed. That's God's grace to us. We can now see ourselves based on Yeshua's life and righteousness rather than based on my shortcomings. That's a good deal. Now, and I'm going to say this over and over because, listen, the fact that Paul writes this chapter and begins it the way he he does shows that it's human nature to abuse grace. It does not mean we pretend we never sin 
or that we ignore our shortcomings or as if they didn't exist. What it means is we are to see that grace is now the prevailing work and the prevailing influence in our lives, not the knowledge of our unworthiness and our failures, but the knowledge that God has given us mercy through Yeshua. As a result of this grace, we no longer have to remain at a distance from God. And the result of that is sin will not have dominion over us anymore. See, as God's grace reaches into our hearts and we see more and more clearly that our lives are connected to Yeshua and that he's really removed our sin, as these truths get into our hearts, what happens is instead of distancing ourselves from God, which is what we do naturally, which is what we do when we focus on ourselves and our shortcomings, we kind of feel like, I don't really feel all that comfortable going into the presence of God. Instead, we will present ourselves to God. We'll draw near to God as those who've been made alive from, from that spiritual death that we used to live in. And so, as those drawing near to God and living in his presence in life, we experience an impartation of Yeshua's life and, and that strengthens us for resisting sin. Now, just a few more minutes. Just bear with me, because really the, the most important part is what we're getting into now because it's the practical day-to-day stuff. So let's just break these principles down a little bit further. Sin will not have dominion over us as long as we are under the ministry of the law or that under as long as we live in that place of, of feeling unworthy all the time in condemnation. Sin will not have dominion, o- or I'm sorry, sin will have dominion over us as long as we're under the ministry of the law. As long as we live in in that place of unworthiness, sin will have dominion over us. Why? Well, the simple truth is when we live under that ministry of the law by focusing on our unworthiness, we get beaten down and discouraged, giving way to condemnation. When that happens, we will not, we, we're not drawing upon the grace of God, and more specifically, we're not drawing near to God himself. When we feel condemned, we don't come into his presence. That's, that's my habit anyway. And for most believers I talk to, I think it's everybody's. We're looking at our performance. We're assuming based on natural reasoning that God must be displeased. And our whole perspective gets off. We figure, how can I present myself to God? Look at my failures. How can he possibly use me, much less even want me in his presence? These kinds of thought patterns I'm describing, this is what happens when we live as those under law. Condemnation blinds us to the grace of God so that we can't seem to get beyond the feelings of unworthiness to see ourselves based on God's grace. Feeling unworthy, we remain at a distance from God, cutting ourselves off from the power of his life and presence. And friends, as long as we keep distance from, distant from God, sin will have very little difficulty having its way in us. It's his presence and empowerment that enables us to be victorious over sin. So, remaining, at a, remaining distant from God, we end up sinning even more And of course, when we sin more, we feel more guilty, more unworthy. It's just a downward spiral that, that, that virtually destroys our spiritual life and our walk with the Lord. The only way to stop the downward spiral, we think it's, I just have to do better. Well, if you do, you may do better for a little while, but you're going to mess up eventually. 
The only way to stop the downward spiral is to get our eyes off of ourselves and receive that grace of God as we believe what his word says about our connection to Yeshua. Friends, condemnation will keep us locked up in a prison of our weaknesses and failures, convincing us that the patterns of sin and failure will never change. I want to tell you, when you are in condemnation, you have no hope for getting victory over sin. I don't have to tell you. You know that. And the result of that is we'll continue to live out the failure and weakness and unworthiness that we're focusing on. If you're focusing on your failure, you're just going to continue to live that out. This is what it means to be under law. Focusing on the failure and unworthiness in us that the word of God points out. And so if we sin, our sense of law or legalism kicks in to minister condemnation. We don't get past that condemnation. And so we remain at a distance from God and his grace. And that is when sin will have dominion over us. Sin has dominion over us as long as guilt and condemnation prevent us from seeing God's grace in the midst of those times when we most need the grace of God. Folks, do you, do, do you know, this is a real deep thing here. Do you know why God gives us grace? Because we need it. <laughs> we don't get to a place where we're, okay, now I can receive it because I'm good at no. We receive that grace at times of need, those times when we may feel the worst about our sin and we're tempted to think, you know, I've really done it this time. I've let God down again and I feel so unworthy. Beloved, sin doesn't have dominion over us just because we stumble and fall. It only, sin only has dominion over us when our knowledge of sin causes us to withdraw from fellowship with God. As long as we dwell on our failures and weaknesses, we will end up believing more in our unworthiness than we are believing in God's grace. And when that's the case, we will stay at a distance from God, living under the ministry of the law. But the grace of God invites us to come into his presence where we can experience real life transformation. And so, Shaul's exhortation here, is continually hold before your eyes this truth that you, through Messiah, you really are dead to sin and alive to God. And as you believe this truth, respond to this grace given to you by presenting your members as weapons of righteousness. Give yourself over to living entirely for his glory. You can do this, Shaul says, because you are no longer under that ministry of law that leaves you leaving condemned and unworthy. That's why you can present yourself to God anytime, all the time, as those alive from the dead. You are under grace, which establishes you as righteous with Yeshua's own righteousness, a grace that has an ongoing and dynamic work in your life. Empowering, empowering you to actually become more and more like Yeshua himself as your life has been transplanted into his life. Let